So welcome to the Ace Podcast, uh, Nathan and Brittany. How are you today? Doing good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm really excited. Actually, uh, Nathan. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, right. There you are. <laughs> Here I am. Uh, I'm really excited because I. Um, this is my first time doing uh, having three people on the podcast together, uh, including myself, and um, and so I'm I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to see where this goes or, or how how this goes. So, first time doing more than the one on one. So thank you for doing that with me. Sure. Um, so, um, Nathan, uh, we'll start with you. I'd love to, to know, um, about you and your background and then we'll talk about Brittany here and then we'll get into it. Absolutely. My name is Nathan Beaver. I'm the deer biologist for the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. I've been in that position for just about six years now. And I moved out here from Maine where most of my family lived for at least the early 2000s and 2010s. And I did grow up hunting, so we'll kind of get into my hunting background a little bit and really into the outdoors. I do a little bit of gaming. I like to just kind of hang out with the family and the dog. And Gaming? Just a, kind of a chill chill fellow. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're a gamer? I'm a little bit of an online gamer, yep. Oh, neat. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I hear that's a little addicting, is it? it? It can be. It was a problem during my undergrad years, but now it's just uh, an hour here and there. Okay. So, no well, big deal. Uh, um, I, I'm sorry, but I have to like get into the gaming Please here for do. a second because <laughs> uh, I'm not a gamer. I converted her too. So yeah, wait, yeah. wait a second, you too? Yes, a little really? bit. A little bit. <laughs> okay, that's how it starts. Yes, yes, it, yes, it does. Uh, mm -hmm. What it, what what gaming is it? Is it uh, like uh, Call of Duty type stuff? Uh, I'm not really into the shooter stuff. I'm more of a. It's mostly PC gaming, and I like civilization building type games and. Huh. Probably the game I've played the most over the years, I'll admit, was World of Warcraft. But other than that, I, I like kind of civilization building and uh, stuff like that. Okay. what What is your favorite game? Probably World of Warcraft, yeah. like over all time. Right now, I play a game called RimWorld quite a bit, which is kind of low on graphics, but it's civilization building with a lot of storytelling built into it and just a lot of really weird elements that create dynamic events and make you kind of craft a story as you build a build a town and develop people's characters oh neat neat yeah. okay yeah i that's fascinating because i i mean i don't know if it's the shoot 'em up kind or the what was the the old one that everybody was really into back in the day that was very violent that's the, like every game <laughs> okay <laughs> grand theft auto i was gonna say oh, grand oh, theft auto grand, grand could theft, be that kind <laughs> of <laughs> is that still around grand theft auto uh, yeah i'm sure i think they're going on to six pretty soon oh, okay yeah, five or six yeah it's still around yeah interesting yeah that's cool i mean as, if it's one or two hours a day that's not bad right i yeah. mean yeah and, it's occasional yeah mm -hmm. let yeah. me ask you this about gaming uh and Brittany, feel free to chime sure. in. Do you do you feel like gaming helps helps in any way? Because there's a lot of people who are like, you know, it, oh, it's ruined my marriage, and he stays up all night. He gets up and he can't he or she, right. but mostly he. From what I've heard, he's he, you know, gets up at seven in the morning and he has to go to work, but he's only slept for two hours, and I can't stand. I've heard stories like that. Sure, absolutely. Is there any? Is there a positive story to it? Like, well, I mean, we play several games together, right? And that's really nice because oh, we cool. actually have both of our computers right upstairs above where we're sitting. We'll just sit next to each other and play together. So, mm -hmm. so, that's so like it's fun. interactive. It's not just you know him doing his own thing and you know whatever. Like it, it's part of a a relationship. And I mean, like anything that can be a vice, you know, I think gaming in particular, it's true. 
but it might also get a bad rap. You just have to be very intentional with how much time you're putting in and how you're investing in your relationship and other things in your life. Like, are you not eating meals because you're gaming? Are you, you know, canceling plans because you're gaming? Like, then it's a problem. Then you need to be addressing what are my priorities here because it can, it can swallow you in absolutely. But I even get that way with like reading a really good book. All of a sudden it's 11 PM. I'm way past my bedtime. Like, okay, I need to bring it back and just live healthier and live balanced. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause I've heard the extreme, sure. you yeah. know, and then I've heard my stories of some of my friends, but then I've heard the extreme of like people having, wearing diapers and all kinds of weird <laughs> stuff right. that can't get up. Yeah. That is a problem. That is mm-hmm. a problem. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, uh, so thank you, Nathan, for that. Uh, <laughs> a little uh, detour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little gaming detour. Uh, but, um, Brittany, yeah, so my name is Brittany Peterson. Um, we are married. I just kept the last name because uh, it's easy and cheaper. Um, <laughs> and uh, for Maine, I am a wildlife biologist. I've been in that position for almost two years now. And before that, I was doing a lot of temporary contract work for the state of Maine. I moved here when Nate started his position five, six years ago. And before that, was working, again, a lot of temporary wildlife positions all over uh, America, really. I see. I yeah, see. Yeah. Um, so um, you 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 came to Maine as well, but you were from most of my family's from Minnesota, Minnesota. and I came out from there. But previous okay. to here, my last like engagement was in Nebraska doing I some see. river otter work for my master's degree out there. I see. Right. So and then I'm originally from California, I and see. my last position before coming out here was in Missouri. So. Missouri. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, great. Mm-hmm. So. Um, man, f- like fascinating. There's a lot of uh, a lot of demograph or uh, geographics here. Very much. That's only the tip of the iceberg, too. <laughs> really, this is a weird kind of a weird field where there's different ways to get into like professional level work. But a lot of people, it's just lots of seasonal temporary jobs all over the country. It really helps to be flexible. So a lot of folks in this sort of job have worked all over with a lot of different species, a lot of different agencies, learning different techniques and. Yeah, we, we've both been pretty much all over the country in pursuit of wildlife before we ended up here. That's great. That's great. And we were talking before the podcast, you're both hunters. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, experience level for both of you? Pretty green. I've done it for less than 10 years. I started in grad school uh, and I did my graduate work in Wisconsin. So that was my first intro to actually physically going out and hunting. I had tagged along a little bit before, um, but yeah. Ten years or ten, less. Ten mm-hmm. years. And mostly hunting... Uh, deer. White-tailed. White-tailed deer. I've also um, gone on a pheasant hunt that was part of a program in grad school. It's Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow. It targets people, students, and professionals who are in you know this kind of a wildlife profession but may not have a hunting background or any experience in hunting and that program is more to kind of close that gap because these professionals are making decisions based on often harvested game but again don't have respect of hunting knowledge of hunting understanding of hunting so that's just this long course to really go through you know how hunting is a conservation tool, uh, how hunting is regulated, and it culminates at the very end if you want to participate in a pheasant hunt. Um, so I've done that as well. Oh. And then I've tagged along on a couple of turkey hunts, but just to watch and experience. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So mostly your... Mostly lo- deer. Mostly yes. your love is deer. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, mm-hmm. cool. And then Nathan? 
I've hunted since I was around 12 years old, I think. I went out for my first time hunting around age 10 or 11. I grew up hunting in Wisconsin. You couldn't at that time hunt that early, but I went out a couple of times just to see what it was like and decide if I wanted to do it. Mm. So I've been hunting since I was 12. I am a very casual hunter. I would say pretty lazy hunter. I like to hunt. We have about 30 acres behind our house here, and I pretty much just stick to that when I hunt. And oh, if cool. I have to travel anywhere, I just don't want to bother with it. <laughs> I got you. Know, I'm pretty casual, lazy hunter, mostly white-tailed deer hunting. May branch out into turkeys a little bit in the future because we have quite a few around the property here. But I see. Really, just deer hunting is what my background is. Nice. And so you're back 30. <laughs> yeah, my back 30. Yeah. You're back 30. Is there a lot of game back there? We have quite a bit. We have trail cameras up, and we've been getting a lot more white-tailed deer than we used to. We've done quite a bit of property management since we moved in. We do have a lot of turkeys, very occasional coyote, seen both uh, gray and red fox, I believe. Yep. Mm, got a little porcupine that hangs out in the front yard quite often, some grouse, woodcocks. Snowshoe yeah, hair. Lots of stuff around. Mm-hmm. Bear, bear and moose? Not that we've seen. I would imagine they're there occasionally, right. but we've seen very little, if any, sign. There's been a couple instances where we thought maybe we saw moose tracks, but we're not quite sure. I see. Is this an area for... So we're in the, the Bangor area. Right. Is this area... Um, ripe for any one particular species, probably other than deer. There's probably a lot of deer here, right? We're in a part of this wildlife management district here that has a, a decent number of deer, but not nearly as many as if you go a few towns west where there's a lot more. Mm-hmm. <gasps> we're very much on the periphery of moose range, so it'd be pretty rare to find them here, and we're kind of in marginal barrier uh, range as well. So you could find black bear, but we just haven't yet. I see, I see. Um, your experience as far as, uh, your deer hunting, you call it casual. Um, was that, what does that mean? Is it kind of like (laughs) kind of whenever I want, I'm not really that into it. It's like whenever I need meat. (laughs) It's exactly right. That means I'm not traveling far to do it. If I get cold and don't want to sit out anymore, I'm not going to force myself just because I bought a license and it's the season. I just kind of do it when I want and don't go far to do it. And I'm very happy with that. That's good. And I would say, or at least for me, because so much of my work currently and Nathan's work previously has been these capture efforts of wildlife, which which is basically catch and release hunting where you're sitting out in a blind, you know, trying to get these animals and, you know, you are going to sit because this is a job. It doesn't matter how long it takes or even if you're successful, you are sitting rain or shine, snow or whatever. So for me, I never want hunting to feel like work. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll push it and whatever. But again, if I want to enjoy it. And so that tends to be, yeah, a bit more passive on the hunting side. Like, you know, I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to go home now. So because I push it, you know, in the winter I was trapping turkeys and like I was numb from like the knees down because I'd been sitting since, you know, four in the morning and now it's four in the afternoon. So I think just because wanting to be intentional about not letting hunting bleed into your work life and trying to have that, you know, work-life balance. Sure, sure. At least for me. Absolutely. Yeah. So neither, it sounds to me like neither of you are um, uh, trophy hunters. Like you, it's not like, hey, I'm waiting for that big buck to step out. It's more of like, hey, it's time to put some food on the table. Yeah. You know, type thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, looking to have fun for sure. And then meet. And yeah. beyond that, like trophies, it's cool if we see one. We never do though. But it's yeah. cool if we do. But yeah. 
early, I take the first thing that'll fill my freezer. Yeah. Yep. First good shot. I'm not going to pass on it. Oh, cool. No. That's interesting. I love that. And I've seen that more in Maine than, than I mean, of course, I'm new to the whole deal, but I've seen it more in Maine than I've seen it, especially out West. Yep. And then and then my experience in Hawaii, everybody's looking for what they call the big racks, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. The, um, the hammers, they call them. Mm-hmm. You know? I haven't yeah. heard that. <laughs> yeah. They call them the hammer. <laughs> I actually had a guy call me a year. No, it was pre-COVID. Everything's defined by COVID now. So it must have been like three or four years ago mm-hmm. from Hawaii. He wanted to come out to Maine to hunt. He was looking specifically for the biggest bodied deer you could possibly find. Oh, okay. So, biggest bodied. Yeah. Oh, it okay. seems like big animals kind of uh, mentality out there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, it's, I just, there's a contrast there between uh, hunters that work really hard for, oh, yeah. for hunting and are buying all the garb and getting the, the best rifles and or bows and practicing constantly and doing their long like uh, long range shots and that kind of thing and getting as 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 you know good as they can for their uh, passion and their sport going far into the back country um, like and and I feel like there's a correlation between that and finding the most mature animal, which you know, which is a trophy, right? Sure. Yeah. And then like the, the other side of it is uh, the, your side, which is hey, just time to put some food on the table. Let's go out back and find uh, a, a you know just an animal that we 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 need to harvest. Right. So pretty interesting uh, contrast there as far as workload. Right. (laughs) It's cold now. It's time for me to leave. Mm -hmm. And then I watched some videos. uh, um, You're probably not familiar with this, but there's a a video or a certain YouTube channel I watched called the Gritty channel. His Mm -hmm. name is Brian Call. They're all about suffering. Sure. It's just it's a suffer fest. Hard yeah. pass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's as the, the harder they work, the the better they feel at the end of the hunt. Like 14 days of like like damn near broken bones. Yeah. You know what I mean? To to find that the animal that they're looking for. And yeah, it's just perspective, I guess. Yeah. Well, that props to them. Because then we yeah. can experience that <laughs> sort of go. thing too without actually having to do it. So yeah. It's great. Yeah. And once you when you watch a lot of those videos, you kind of get you know, you, you, you kind of, your your world kind of focuses on that. And you're like, hey, maybe all, a lot of hunters are like that. Mm-hmm. But it's refreshing to talk to you and and for, and for your your perspective is like, hey, we just want to put food on the table. And, you know, I'm not trying to, to get cold. I just sure. want to go out there and get my meat. Yeah. Hunters so, are as diverse as the general population. There's hunters of all sorts. So Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Um, from talking to your counterpart Lee and and um, uh, I, and you know even um, Lisa and and, and those mm-hmm. guys, mm-hmm. I've just noticed that there's just more of like a culture here of that of like just um, the love of being outdoors and integrating your family into it and that kind of thing here in Maine, which is really refreshing actually. So um, so one of the big questions I had for you is the the state of deer in Maine. Like knowing just basically uh, an overview of like what the populations are doing as far as trends. Are, are, you, are you trending upwards in, in any particular area or down or any like big concerns? I know there's a lot of, yep. lot of, a lot in there. So what, what are your thoughts on the, the state of deer in Maine? It really varies quite a lot in the state of Maine going north to south, where up north you tend to struggle as far as building up deer numbers in the south, especially coastal Maine. We have the opposite problem where we more struggle to control numbers. 
of deer right now, especially on the islands and along the coast. Those areas are very developed. There's a lot of expensive properties around there. People post a lot of properties along the coast because they've got their nice beachfront house and they just don't want people kind of messing with their sort of Zen beach life experience. And so there's just not a lot of places to hunt in a lot of southern and coastal Maine. And so we have problems with too many deer there. And then in the north, too few deer. It really, really depends where you're at in the state. I see. How how would you manage those areas where there's too many deer? We do our best with regulated hunting. There's definitely some question whether or not regulated hunting is enough and whether or not that's the future of deer management hunting or something else. But for the most part, we rely on regulated hunting, and then we try to encourage people to take personal responsibility for whatever deer-related issues they're facing. If it's property damage, we encourage protecting your whatever ornamental plants or whatever they have that's causing the problem with fencing or planting other species that are not palatable to deer. You can try different methods of hazing, noise deterrence, chemical deterrence, things like that. And then there are some other removal options that are more of a last-ditch effort for us. We can set up what's called a special hunt where we work with like a town to have a, a really kind of small tailored hunting experience to remove deer in communities. And then we also issue what are called depredation permits, which are property-specific so if you are having problems with specific deer coming into your gardens or doing damage on your property, bugging your livestock, we can target specific animals with special permits. So it's mostly removal. And kind of the big reason that is, is for a wildlife management agency, we have a pretty small staff. So really we rely on hunters. That's mm -hmm. a much bigger kind of labor force for us to do mm -hmm. the big management activities for us. So regulated hunting, that's what we have for a big management tool. And if that fails to meet management objectives, it's really questionable kind of what the next step is going to be. And luckily in Maine, we're kind of on the northern end of things where deer numbers tend not to get as out of control. But the further you go south, there's more and more issues like this where they're just having difficulties controlling deer numbers because regulated hunting is not doing quite enough in some areas. I see. When you say regulated hunting, just forgive my ignorance, that's just normal, like you know, setting regulations for Right. Like, so allocated. just hunting seasons established by whatever the management agency is for that jurisdiction through rules and laws. So that'd be your seasons, your bag limits, things like that. I see. Just normal. Yeah. Yep. Regulation. So if there's like in those coastal areas when there's, you know, complaints of like a lot of deer and uh, forgive me if, uh, I don't know if those are high populated areas or uh, a lot of homes in that in those areas and I do you would you use bow to 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 regulate those animals or would it be a lot more? of what we have in Maine actually we have a program called the expanded archery program and it's a program that applies only to areas with firearms discharge ordinances so if you can't hunt with a gun there then you can only hunt with a bow and we actually allow in those areas basically unlimited harvest. Huh. So these are the more developed areas of the state where there's more people and more houses and things like that. And in those areas, if they have a discharge ordinance for firearms, they can hunt expanded archery, which is take all the deer you want with a bow, basically. I see. Is and that season currently starts a whole month and lasts a month prior to statewide archery. So standard archery is in October. But this expanded season starts in September and goes all the way through mid-December. Yeah, so it's like a three-month season. So if you have deer problems in those areas, you basically have every opportunity you could possibly want to try to control them through removal. I see. Is that helping? Is that working? It does, but you have the same kind of issues with land access. It's a big problem. Like if it's not accessible with a gun, it's probably because the, the landowner doesn't want a hunter on their property and that issue is going to extend to a bow hunter as well. I see. So land access is a, is a big issue for sure. And we, we hear a lot of people talk about expanded archery, how it's just like the impact in like sardines, the hunters, there's just a 
hunter behind every tree, it seems like, because it's really? relatively small areas, unlimited removal opportunities. So a lot of people flock to those areas and they get pretty crowded. I see. Right, is, is uh, again, I'm asking some silly questions, but is baiting allowed? For no baiting there? in the state of Maine, no. We do allow artificial feeding during the winter, uh-huh. but uh, baiting, which would be essentially the same as feeding, would just be feeding during the hunting seasons, and we do not allow that. I see. Uh, salt licks, that would be considered baiting too? Yep, right? you can't hunt over them, but during the winter, again, you can place them out on the landscape. I see. Can you uh, explain salt licks to me? I know that I... I sure. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just some salt on the ground, right? They just, they, yeah. uh, the animals like that. Yeah, that's all I know. Yep. All mammals require certain minerals in their diet and sodium's included in that. And sodium happens to be a kind of a rare one that's hard, hard to get. And for the most part, deer can get the sodium they need in their diet from just the food that they eat. But it, it's a lot easier. Just like a person, they're going to exert as little energy as they need to to get the resources they need. So if you put that mineral like on a block in front of a deer and they do need it, then they're going to take advantage of it. I see. Now, uh, oh, it's similar to like the, the, the bear situation where you would think that they want donuts, you know, <laughs> but they're eating uh, seeds or granola bars, you know. No, that's okay. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're having a... a uh, that's what, our dog, uh, Evie, in the background. Okay, good. I was, <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to say something. Named uh, after a Pokemon, because, again, we are gamers. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, she's, like, staring at me in my eyes, like, burning through my eyes. <laughs> like, I feel like my eyes are... <laughs> like, there's a laser on me. Uh, but um, the cutest dog, if if this was a, a video, you could see that this is a cute dog anyway. Um, man, where were we? <laughs> salt licks. Salt, salt licks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So salt licks. Uh, when a salt lake is placed on the ground, does it ruin that area? Can it ruin that area? What do you mean by ruin? The, the soil? Oh, well, I guess a couple of things to mention there. They can start to dissolve and leach into the soil. So even if you take the block off the landscape, it'll still have a lot of sodium and the deer will still use it. Oh, I so see. So there's that. But then, yeah, if you're talking about ruin, like growing plants and stuff... If the plant has a low tolerance for salinity, high salinity, then yeah, it wouldn't grow things very well there anymore. I see. But they're usually just affecting a very small area on the ground, so that's not really an issue. Gotcha, gotcha. Has there ever been any thought of, uh, I mean, I, and again, me just talking out of my butt here, uh, those areas that you're having problems with, even even further extended seasons and or um, yeah, any other options uh, to, to manage those, those animals? It's tough because like the area I'm talking about here in Maine, for those familiar, I'm talking or I'm thinking of Wildlife Management District 25 is a pretty good one. It's a pretty coastal area, very high deer densities, over 40 deer per square mile, we estimate. And we issue essentially enough permits there that anyone who wants an antlerless deer permit gets one and there's still a ton left over. So we're basically providing almost unlimited opportunity there for people who want to take antlerless deer and it's still not achieving the amount of removal we want to achieve. So I don't think that um, any changes within the regulated hunting season framework are likely to be all that effective for us. We'll have to, you know, try other things. Think of different uh, different ways. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, wow, that's pretty cool that there's that much deer down there. I mean, just from a hunting standpoint. Yeah, it's <laughs> all relative, too, because, like, I say a lot of deer, and then you take the amount I'm talking about and extend it to New York or Pennsylvania, and it's nothing compared to states like that or, or the Midwest where we came from. Per square mile. Yeah. For Maine, it's a lot of deer, but other places it would be just normal. 
I see. So the, the main species of deer here is the white-tailed deer, or the Correct. species, the only species, or is that... Yep, is we just it? have the white-tailed deer here, Otocoileus virginianus, and then we also have another cervid, the moose, which uh, you spoke with, Leah, a bit about moose. Yeah, yeah, long conversation there. Um, fascinating. Um, so can you tell me, I'm not familiar with whitetail, I'm, and people on this podcast are going to be like listening, be like, you're an idiot. Uh, but I don't know too much about whitetail. Sure. I, my my experience is, uh, some people say a deer is a deer is a deer, but I, I don't think so. Um, mm. I hunt axis deer in Hawaii pretty regularly. Oh. I go over there quite a bit. I, I love the meat. I love what I love the animal. the the, the way they're uh, they uh, live in herds. Um, they're beautiful. Uh, a, a big regal buck is like is amazing. Just and it's amazing uh, you call it a trophy if you want but just amazing trophy mm. um so i love that i love the 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 islands of hawaii um being able to i mean you, you'll get scratched up a bit but being able to hunt in shorts and <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh the kiavi uh thorns will mess you up a little bit mm. but it's amazing to be up in the mountains in shorts and sure. a t-shirt yeah. and a backpack yep. you know it's amazing and and seeing deer everywhere they're they're invasive and there's thousands of them in mm. hawaii and so if you you want to eat and you're not worried about a trophy you could eat all day mm-hmm. there so I'm, I'm familiar with that um how and are, are you familiar with axis deer a little bit or uh, a little bit yeah okay we've been to Hawaii once for me, a couple of her for a couple of times for her. We didn't see any deer though. I don't think while we no, were there. We, we saw those deer. cool go- the the geese, the nenes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? The nenes. <laughs> we saw those. That was pretty cool. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we didn't see any deer while we were out there. What, what island were you on? I was on Maui. I'm not sure where she's been. Yeah. So I've been to Hawaii, and then we went to Maui for a honeymoon. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. great. Yeah. So not on on the island of Hawaii, mm-hmm. but there's a. Uh, the, the the three islands is um, Maui, Lanai, and Molokai is where all the axis deer okay. are, yeah. and thousands, just thousands <laughs> of them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, very important to the the hunters there that that uh, that uh, species. But um, uh, you know, whitetail. Um, in contrast, not you. You said you don't know too much about axis. You know a little bit, but could you explain the life of uh, just everything white tail. <laughs> I know it's a big, that's a big topic, but sure. I'm yeah. going to go and scatter shot all over. Do there, it. Do it. Start. She's also got, my wife's also got quite a bit of a white tail background so she can, I'd love to hear it from if both. she wants. But, yeah, uh, sure. Oh boy. Where to start? Uh, Otocolius virginianus is the, uh, scientific name. There's about 30 or 40 subspecies, I think of, of white tail deer. Wow. And then there's a couple other uh, species in the Otocolius genus. There's the mule deer, which includes the mule deer and the black-tailed deer, and then there's some. Uh, there's a Mexican species of Otocoiles as well, called a brocket or something like that, something rather. So three species in the genus, and like 40 subspecies of white-tailed deer. They pretty much range over the entire United States. I think they're in all the lower 48 states. There may be a couple states like Utah or Nevada or California where they're maybe just a tiny part of the state, but they're pretty much everywhere. And here in Maine as well, they go north to south, so we have them throughout the state. Um, there's a lot of variation across the country in white-tailed deer, though. If we talk about things like body size, for example, your very smallest subspecies would be your key deer down in Florida and the Florida Keys. And a full-grown adult male key deer might be 40, 50 pounds, something like that, something wow. like a collie, a collie dog like that. Whereas your northern main big mature buck up here on, on live white may be 350 pounds. I think the record is 
maybe from Minnesota or Michigan, over 400 pounds. That's exceedingly rare, though. A 200-pound yeah. buck is a great, great buck, but still a lot of variation north to south in, in uh, body size. They're called white-tailed deer for a pretty obvious reason. You <laughs> usually associate seeing a white-tail as a, kind of a white flag in the woods <laughs> waving goodbye to you as they've sensed you before you sense them and they're running off. Um, what else can we cover? There's so much. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, that's why I said it's a, it's a big thing. I can t- talk a- about the year uh, for a deer and kind of what that looks like. I just gave a presentation on that, so it's very fresh in my mind. But Yeah, that, that'd be great, too. Yeah, uh, it's a big ask, I know. But just from somebody who just doesn't know, anything that you're saying right now is like, uh, I'm a sponge. I'm like, okay. oh, I'm like, really? <laughs> cool. Like, you know, 350 pounds. I was like, what? You know? Yeah, that, like, it's hard to fathom that. I don't imagine I've seen a deer anywhere near that size, but they're out there. Well, so the the topography here in Maine, um, and anytime you want to add to that, sure. Brit- Brittany, that'd be great, you know, especially your experience. Um, th- th- it's thick. I mean, it's thick out here. Yeah. There's like, there's no way that I could hunt. I mean, I don't know how to hunt here. Yeah, I'm with don't. you, man. <laughs> yeah. from the Midwest. It was totally different. Yeah, we, we're spending a lot of money on glass, like on, <laughs> on binoculars, binos, and like spawning scopes and sitting sitting behind the glass and yep. just looking and waiting and watching. And and uh, here, you just see trees. Yep, you can shoot like 20 feet. <laughs> yeah, and you can eat. I, um, I've hunted in the, the western uh, portion of, of Washington where there's... Um, uh, Roosevelt elk mm-hmm. there mm, yep. and it's it's thick in there but you at least they're vocal you can call right. them at certain times of the year you know whether it's cow calls or bugles and that at least you can locate them through, sure. a, through a bugle and it's like okay where are you and mm-hmm. then they'll answer back mm-hmm. like hey, I'm gonna start heading in that direction sure. or whatever yep but here what what's the strategy mm. Boy, if we knew, man, <laughs> it's tough because Maine is like 90% forested. So you're looking at dense, dense habitat for the most part. And where I came from hunting in the Midwest, it's really easy. You just look for edge habitat and there's your trails, there's your beds, there's your food. you got everything right there. Hmm. Here in Maine, you don't have a lot of edge habitat. And what you do have a lot of it's power line corridors or um, rather than like crop wood edges, you maybe had just have edges between different habitat types like a marsh and some upland hardwoods. So it is tough. It's really tough to key in on deer. And honestly, our strategy here on our property has been convert our land to look more like the Midwest where we know how to hunt. So we we came here and it was just all woods on our property and we've done what we can to create openings and food plots and things. So it's a little more familiar to us and we know where to find the deer. And we've had pretty good success with that. But a lot of folks here in Maine, they just love tracking deer. And they'll just a lot of times go into the north woods where they can just cut a track on a gravel road or something and follow it for miles and try to find the deer at the end of it. And that's beyond my style of hunting is kind of yeah. the more casual, lazy hunter. But uh, yeah, a lot of people really enjoy doing that. That's and crazy. I, yeah. I talked to Lisa Fiener on another podcast. Her husband has some good videos on YouTube as well of tracking bucks through the Northwoods that are just really impressive. Finding a track and just following it, following it, following it doggedly until you find the deer at the end. Yeah. That's that's crazy. That's hard, some hard hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Very, yeah. Yeah, that's that's not casual hunting. No, no, no. Yeah. no. <laughs> I do think a lot of central and southern Maine and the coastal Maine, where properties tend to be smaller, is probably more like the Midwest than we give it credit for. Where you're kind of limited to your little neck of the woods, your forty acres or whatever, and sitting up in a stand. And that's mostly how we hunt: just sitting in a stand and and waiting. Yeah, that stand hunting is really big for whitetails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can vary 
quite a bit where you are. If you're like hunting the prairie or something, you're wasting your time. If you're sitting up in a stand, you're going to have to cover a lot of ground. But uh, here in the woods, if you can find a good trail, find a bedding area, sit in a stand, that's my preference. I see. So how are their noses then? I mean, and, and the wind in, in, a, in a stand, wouldn't that, if something swirls and, I mean, why they would they even come in there? I mean, I... I've uh, obviously stand hunting is really popular, so that's not, it's not that big of a deal that whole wind thing. But you like to play the wind if you can. Like I will only sit, especially on a property this small, thirty acres. It's really easy to overpressure a parcel like that and just kind of drive the deer nocturnal and uh, just won't come around during the daytime. So we really only hunt when conditions are ideal for each stand. So if it's like a north wind and I need a south wind for my favorite stand or wherever I want to sit that day, I'm just not going out. I see. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. And you can fool a young dumb deer, which we take the first deer that walks along. So a lot I'll of times that's the case. Yum and dumb. <laughs> like a fawn, you can, uh, they'll catch you and they'll smell you, but they'll still come in a lot of the time. A mature buck or a mature doe, they're quite a bit more crafty and I you see. have to put in a little more work and be a little more careful with them. Oh, okay. Man, if I was a big mature buck, I'd be living on your property then. <laughs> You'd be, be like, safe here. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, these guys are lazy. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to come out at night yeah. or when the yeah. wind, I know he's not coming because the wind is blowing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I'm fascinated by uh, by whitetail hunting just because I don't know anything yeah. about it. Yeah. And the incredible, like, there's the the whitetail hunters are incredibly passionate it's i mean i'm being kind right they're crazy right? <laughs> they can be and yeah being on the end of things we you get a lot of outreach from hunters who want to see this or that happen in the state yeah there's yeah. a there's a spectrum there there's a lot of laid-back hunters who are just happy to be out and there are some more gung-ho hunters who really want to push 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 things and yeah everyone's a little different yeah. Your doors open, like as far as like for for hunters all over the state to be like, you know, I'm calling up Nathan now. I, I can't stand this. Like my you, literal door. No, stay away from my house <laughs> and my office. I mean, I work from home, so no, don't come here. But my my phone number, if you have it. Yeah, you can give me a call. I got a couple of people who call me a few times a year and just want to talk for a deer about. Yeah. Talk for deer or talk about deer, talk about hunting, whatever for an hour. And that's fine. For the most part, we just get a lot of emails. Like we have a service on our website that'll basically kind of filter by keyword or we'll have staff look at it. And if it has deer in it, it's coming to me. And yeah. So I'll answer all those questions. And I'm, I, that's one of my favorite things about my job, actually. So I'm really glad people do that. Really? Yeah. That's great. That's great to hear. I um, Not that I'm trying to get you more business on that <laughs> end, but I, you know, you're... I don't see how one person does it for the whole state. I mean, you have... I mean, you must be busy. I know you said you have a small staff, but... I mean, I'm sure you have a state full of deer hunters here that are real passionate, right? And It's pretty typical setup, though, to have one deer specialist for a state. Mm-hmm. So New Hampshire, Vermont, they both have one person, uh, New Brunswick as well. Some of the bigger states that uh, more deer and more hunters, like Pennsylvania, New York, have like three to four people that just work on deer-related stuff. I see. But for Maine, one is, it's working. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you, do you have a saying. staff? Do you have like no? Uh, I like mean, if I need staff? people, I can hire temporary seasonal help. Like uh, during the fall, during the hunting seasons, we hire a bunch of people to go to like meat lockers where people butcher deer. I see, and they can then they can get their hands on a lot of deer at once and take measurements and collect data, lymph node samples for disease testing, stuff like that. Mm. But not like permanent staff. We do have a guy that we hired, a new full time staff. Well, I say new, but it was like two years ago, and his job is just to essentially look at potential. Uh, department land acquisitions for deer wintering habitat 
Mm-hmm. And then if we do acquire those properties, he sets up a management plan on those to manage for, for deer wintering habitat. So we, we do have kind of two deer-related staff now as of a couple of years ago. But as far as like deer management in the state goes, it's just myself and seasonal. I'll get help from people if I need it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, Brittany, your, your take on whitetail? My take. Yeah. So coming from California, you know, it was just mule deer. Um, and I didn't know anybody who hunted, no one in my family hunted. And then my first job out of undergrad was in Wisconsin working on a, at the time it was the largest wildlife project the state had ever undertaken. It was a four year deer survival study of both adults and fawns. So I got to capture adults in the winter, follow them. um, And then when fawns dropped in the spring, you know, put collars on those and do habitat surveys. So from like birth to death and movement and habitat. I mean, it was just like trial by fire. I learned a lot and I learned quickly. Um, And then I was sold before that. I didn't think I wanted to necessarily be in game management and I was converted. So Mm -hmm. just being exposed to uh, deer and also the hunting community and the landowners out there. Yeah. Talk about passion. Um, And it was quite the education. Um, So, yeah, I, I was on that project. I went out to North Carolina working with whitetails again in turkeys. I came back to Wisconsin and then I ended up staying there to do my master's work, which was on juvenile dispersal of white-tailed deer. So talking about life cycles, these male deer, so they're born in the spring, they live, hopefully they survive their first hunting season and then they're in their, the next spring, so they're one year old. Mom is having her new batch of fawns, and the hypothesis there is she will kick him out of her home range because she's having, you know, basically his siblings, and he needs to move out and find his own territory. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't leave then, there's another time where he could, they call these movements dispersal, he could disperse in that next fall. So now he's a year and a half old, and he's sexually mature. Now these other bigger male white-tailed deer in the area are saying, no, 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 I'm not competing with you. You need to get out of here. So again, whether it's, you know, the doe kicking him out, another male kicking him out, if he's deciding himself whether or not he's to leave, again, this is all hypotheses because we can't ask them what motivated you to take off, but they just Mm. leave. It's pretty quick, this movement. And then they set up home in a whole nother spot, whole new area. And so my research is looking at, you know, what makes them move? What are some reasons for how far they go? What do, directions do they take? Stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, super fascinating. So I learned a lot in just like five, six, seven years. So. What did you, you learn there? With my master's work? No, with that specific oh. study there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So with Wisconsin, um, they were looking at... Uh, str- Uh, winter-specific mortality. So is it predators? Is it winter severity? Is it roadkill? And then we had two separate study areas for this. There was one way up north that was like 80% forested, pretty similar to Maine, uh, a lot of public land, and then kind of in the central eastern section of Wisconsin, which was heavily ag. I think it was maybe... 30% if that was uh, public land. So most of it was private, most of it was farmland. And so also just kind of comparing and contrasting those two areas. So yeah, up north, uh, basically once a deer is about two years old, they're going to survive. Um, Even if the winter Mm. is really harsh, harsh winter is going to knock out 
the fawns that are in their very first winter. You know, they, they don't have the big body size. They don't have a lot of fat. They're the ones who are susceptible to, you know, starving basically in the winter. Mm. And then uh, in that eastern farmland area, roadkill was really big. Really? There's a lot more roads out there. There's a lot less woods. So deer maybe are moving more frequently, but they just have more exposure to vehicular collisions. And then... Hunting. I mean, hunting's number one across the board. I think for every state, the cause of mortality is going to be hunting harvest. Really? Um, but yeah, but <laughs> not here. Not here. No, okay. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but what yeah. It, what is it here? It depends where you're at in the yeah, state. Up enough. north, it'd be predation. Mm. In more central and southern Maine, it'd still be probably hunting for bucks, mm. for does, deer vehicle collisions, and then hunting's probably around second. Bucks because they're they're looking for... Uh, uh, bucks, because anyone in the state of Maine who has a hunting license can take a buck, whereas you require typically a special permit to I take see. an antlerless deer. I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. So when I was talking to Randy, um, he, uh, the you know, for those who who don't know that he worked with with you all for, I don't know how 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 many years he worked with you or in, yeah, in I the, think we had. Two or three years of overlap, but he had like 40 years with the department or something crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, 40 years with bears. He said that um, predation or uh, the, the bears, or, or when you say predation, you're talking about bears or? In Maine on adult deer, I'm talking primarily canids, so coyotes. Oh, coyotes. We do oh. have some bobcat and lynx kills as well occasionally, mm-hmm. but mostly oh. coyotes. Okay, Fantastic. I just, I thought right away when you said predator, I was, the, my mind went to bears for some reason. Sure. If we were yeah. talking about neonates, really young fawns, then we would be looping bear into the discussion a bit more. Like I see. Weeks old, it'll be, yeah, it'll be bears. bears. Mm-hmm. So bears, it, it, a bear probably wouldn't attack like a full grown or just wouldn't be able to be as, uh, as fast as like a, a, a bigger, like healthier deer then. Right. A Full-grown black bear taking uh, an adult deer would just pretty much not happen. I'm sure it happens on occasion Mm because everything under the sun has happened at least once. But for the most part, black bears are not preying on adult deer. Right. Opportunist more than anything. Yeah, if they stumbled across one that was sick and dying already, they'd probably finish it off. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you think about when deer are more susceptible to predation, it's in the winter, you know, where they're slower because it's deep snow. They're not as fit because you know they're not eating as often well that's when bears are hibernating yeah so they're just not interacting with deer in the winter usually i mean yes they come in and out of hibernation that happens but to sum up the energy to take down a deer even then that would be yeah bizarre that makes sense completely makes sense i wasn't thinking it through there but that makes sense so coyotes really wow any wolves in this area to our knowledge, there's no breeding wolves in Maine. They may range into the state occasionally from the provinces, but no, not really. And yeah. there's some debate about that. There's some folks who are insistent that there are breeding wolves here, but we haven't found any good evidence of that yet. I see. With coyotes, are they managed pretty... Is there somebody who manages them with the, with the state? And have are they managed well, in your opinion? Like, what's the deal there? Managed is a loose term, I guess. We have extremely liberal coyote harvest regulations in the state of Maine. Basically, you can hunt year-round. You can use bait. You can use different implements like lights and silencers and stuff and calls. So can if you want to hunt coyotes, you can do it whenever you want all year long, pretty much. But... Whether or not that does anything as far as controlling coyote numbers, I don't think we really have good evidence that hunting is really suppressing numbers of coyotes at all. We do have a program through our department that 
focuses on removing coyotes specifically in. I'm jumping between coyote and coyote. I realize I don't <laughs> I haven't quite figured out what my pronunciation is. They're both is. right. <laughs> yeah. Some places I've lived, they call them coyotes, and I think that's what I grew up with. But out here, it's coyotes, so I kind of waffling between the two. It's okay. But we have a, a program that focuses on removing coyotes in deer wintering areas when they're the most sensitive to predation. I see. And we don't have, like, good concrete evidence that it's effective, but anecdotally it seems like in very small areas, if you can reduce predation on deer in their most sensitive time of the year in deer running areas, it seems like it's effective. Gotcha. For coyotes, what is the the benefit of shooting them? Are, are they, do, do they, are their pelts? Yep, fur. Nice? Their mm-hmm, fur? Mm-hmm. They have good fur? It depends on the time of the year when you take Wait. them. I can't remember what time of the year it is. I want to say summer pelts are better, but I really don't remember... I see. And I, I don't know that there's a great market for them at the moment, and I'm not sure how the, the Russia-Ukraine wars are impacting things because I know Russia imports a lot of furs. I so see. I'm not sure if that's affected things or not. But, yeah, you can pelt them. I know some people that actually have eaten them. I don't think that's very common, though. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I think people who hunt them just do it because they think they're promoting the deer population by doing so and because they just enjoy the hunt. I see. It's a very unique kind of hunt where... Mm. A lot of folks are going out at night, which you're not usually hunting at night. Yeah. And they're using devices like calls and lights and just, it's, it's a much different type of hunting than you would be doing with deer or something else like that. Interesting. Um, the coyote, I've heard that, um, and I don't know if you've heard this or just correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear that their calls are unique in that uh, when they call out, if they don't get the same response, some something happens in the female to where she can make a bigger litter. Is that true? Have you heard of that? That was all f- foreign to me. I don't okay. Know. Yeah. I've I think heard- you I think you might be talking about there's some folks who have suggested that by reducing coyote numbers then a female will compensate for that by producing a bigger litter and there's um, some some evidence for that but that's another thing that's just not really concrete. Yeah, I've heard that same thing but it was it was through calling. Like if they don't get the same amount of calls back or something along those lines when they call, when they call, 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 if they're not getting the same thing, something happens in the female to where she just, I don't know, something in her biology to where she's like her litters are bigger Mm. or whatever. It's a a self-preservation type Mm. of. I think the mechanism would be the same if that is the case where in a situation where they're not getting as many callbacks, that's necessarily going to be on a landscape where there's fewer coyotes. Mm. It's probably the fact that there are fewer animals that would be causing her to create a bigger litter rather than like the actual calling itself. Oh, I see. Interesting. That's but we're just throwing around ideas we have here. No yeah, idea. no idea. <laughs> yeah. All I know, all I know is that they're all over the U.S. and every big city too. That's sure. From yeah. what I, that's from what I understand. They're a lot, yeah, they're a lot like deer in that right. way. I think, and that they're just incredibly adaptable and resilient. Like, deer live in the mountains. They live in the plains. They live in the woods. They live in the desert. Yeah. I've, when I went to school in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, I would find deer tracks under the Washington Avenue Bridge where I would fish right on campus. They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Super adaptable. Yeah, crazy. Um, I kind of cut you off a little bit there, Brittany. I was I oh, was asking fine. you about whitetail, but I wanted to get into your, you know, what you know about whitetail. But but as far as your hunting background, yeah. because you're a fairly new onset hunter, and uh, just like I did with Lisa, don't want to mention that you're, you know, I mean, I have to mention you're you're obviously a woman, yeah, right. And so this is true. And so <laughs> it's been confirmed. And I'm petite. Uh, I'm only five feet tall. So uh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> I I just have to mention that because I would love to yeah. 
promote that. I, I'd love to promote like uh, hunting from, you know, whether just family hunting, mm-hmm. whether it's, uh, you know, uh, teaching kids how to hunt, wives that uh, maybe aren't, uh, I don't say aren't interested or maybe they aren't, but to get them to kind of see what it what right. it might be like from your from your point of view. So right. kind of starting with whitetail and then hunting. Yeah, well, yeah. So that project in Wisconsin was the first time I met hunters. And yeah, just like we were already talking like, oh, hunters are diverse. So already just from the get go, that kind of changed my perspective and my respect of hunters. Because again, no offense to anyone coming from California, because there definitely can be like some snobbery about that. But just not having any exposure, I relied on kind of that base level stereotype um, and was like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with this. So that already helped, you know, just interacting with hunters and being like, you know, they are educated and they do care. They care about the resource. They care about the woods. They care about conversa- uh, conservation. So that was really helpful. And then when I went on to a project in North Carolina, I actually went on turkey hunts with my bosses. Again, at that point, no interest in hunting myself, but I just wanted to experience turkey hunting and sitting out and seeing them interact with the bird. Fascinating. They didn't harvest a thing, but again, we're getting more exposure. Then I come back to Wisconsin. um, And at that time, when we went back, we actually changed one of our capture methods. Rather, we introduced a capture method. We were darting, so using uh, projectile basically guns uh, to shoot darts at deer. So I'm sitting up in a stand, I'm shooting a projectile. So I'm just getting used to, you know, playing the wind, reading deer behavior, when is a good time to take a shot, you know, what what is ethical. And so again, just getting that exposure too. And then it was actually meeting Nathan, um, you know, because we started a relationship and him talking about hunting and how there have been times he's intentionally not taking a shot at a deer because it was a beautiful deer. Like they had a moment, you know, not that romantic, but you know, um, Mm -hmm. he respected, wow, this big animal came in and he just talked about, he intentionally drew back on his bow and fired to miss intentionally. And that shocked me. Um, you know, he talked about how he feels emotional, you know, taking a deer even intentionally through hunting. And so just again, allowing myself that it's okay if you feel remorse it's okay to be upset um I had also had to euthanize a couple of deer on that deer project because when I had come back to Wisconsin I was actually the crew leader and I was very upset every time I would cry every single time you know because this deer was perfectly fine and then we intervened in its life something went wrong it was very uncommon that something went wrong but something went wrong that was irreversible and we had to take a life and that was upsetting and so again i just kind of assumed you know i just i don't think i have the personality for this i don't think this is for me and then I went out on another deer hunt uh, with my boss at the time in Wisconsin. And this was the first time going on a hunt that someone had the opportunity to take a shot. He actually didn't. We Again, he was bow hunting. The deer didn't come in quite close enough, but I could see him. I was in a different tree, but out of the corner of my eye, I could see my boss. He had drawn back his bow and inside I was excited and I was waiting for him to take the shot. And the deer turned and went off. So again, it wasn't a good opportunity. And I felt disappointment. And that was a watershed moment for me. It was like, mm. oh, I wasn't hoping that the deer got away or, you know, anything like that. Like I was wanting, you know, this to happen. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, 
maybe I can hunt. <laughs> and so then the following year, uh, Wisconsin, like a lot of states, has good, uh, you know, hunter recruitment programs. They had a specific learn to hunt program where it's a special gun season. Um, like it's only for, you know, a handful of brand new hunters and their mentors to go out in the woods. No one else is out there. So again, you're not competing with other hunters. So there's no pressure or anything like that. We were specifically assigned areas that we could hunt. So again, you knew that you were the only person kind of in your block, in your quadrant. And my mentor uh, was actually, so I was in grad school at the time and she was my office mate. We were in the same lab and she was doing her master's work on hunter recruitment, hunter retention, and specifically what it takes for women to not only be recruited into hunting, but to continue hunting and stuff. So anyways, so she was my mentor. So again, having someone who understood some of my reluctance, some of my insecurities, some of my hesitations, instead of being like, no, 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 get over it. Or that's not important. Like, you know, she didn't discount any of that. So I could be very authentic. Mm. Anyways, that day I ended up taking a deer and it was a whole process and actually when I took, when I harvested my deer, a large mature buck was trailing after her. So, you know, she was in estrus, in heat. He's following her with his head down. She came right in front of me, the male, big mature buck peeled off. Didn't matter. I took the doe. She went down really quickly. This was inside of 40 yards, you know, using a rifle. So she died fast, which again, probably helped just with that very first, you know, initial time harvesting an animal that it was quick. Mm-hmm. And he actually, this male deer stayed around because hormones were raging. So he went up to her and was sniffing her. And it was just fascinating to, you know, watch that interaction because I had never, you know, I've been working with deer for years and um, capturing deer, but never during a rut. So just seeing like how those hormones so override like a lot of their survival instincts and stuff was really fascinating to see. And then that was it. Uh, I got my first deer. I got another one during the normal Wisconsin season uh, that year, which Nathan said might have ruined me because I got two deer in one year. And I haven't had any success since, but I'm still going out um, and uh, I'm enjoying it. So yeah, that's truncated version but uh that was kind of my process to get me in and get me established and again being married to nathan you know who is still hunting has a lot of the gear because there is a big financial you know push at the very beginning you know i was borrowing people's rifles people's gear their climbing stands and now you know i'm slowly but surely buying my own stuff but nate had a lot of the big ticket items like i can use his rifle and stuff like that so that really helps um you know you're not dropping a couple grand the very first time you're getting into a hobby that you don't know if you even want to keep doing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you, when you came from California yes. initially, did you, did you have a, um, did you think about hunters one way or the other where you like, I would never hunt or. Yeah. I would never hunt. Yeah. Absolutely. That, yeah. Yep. And, and did you look at, did you, um, was it something that you said that I can't believe that they hunt? I don't know if thing? I, yeah, extreme? I don't know if it was that extreme. Definitely, you know, studying wildlife management, I learned how important hunting was, that it is regulated. You know, again, I think just being uneducated in hunting, we think, you know, people are just running around with guns. Like, no, it's it's regulated. They're collecting very important information for biologists. It is important. I don't want to partake in it, but that's fine. You do what you want to do and go for it. I just did not think I would ever... Um, 
I would ever do that myself. I see. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering if it was one of those things where it was like, oh my god, I can't believe they hunt. <laughs> it's like, you know. But that's that's fascinating. Yeah. That that um, evolution mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. neat. Like mm-hmm. you really just kind of took those steps. Right. It was like, okay, now I think I'm ready now. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. where are you now? Like, how passionate yeah. are you? Are you, you're you're with Nathan on like this the, this casual side? I would take it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because again, I do so much field capture, field work that sure. I suffer a lot <laughs> for uh, my job. Yeah. So I don't want to suffer for you know what I think is, you know, just off time and play. Um, yeah, I am motivated to, you know, fill the freezer and all of that. Um, I, I really have upped my recipe game. Um, so just having like, you know, these wild meats and learning, you know, how to cook them, how to process them, that has been fascinating. So even though I'm not personally bringing in the meat, Nathan is, and then, you know, I can have fun with that in the, in the kitchen. Um, (laughs) but, but yeah, um, yeah, where I am now is I, I hunt whitetail deer every year. Um, I, so part of my job is, so we're going to take a quick tangent in Maine. Hunters have to physically register their big game so if you successfully harvest a bear a moose or a deer you have to take that animal to a registration agent and then they collect all that information and these agents can be like gas stations uh mom and pop stores meat cutters really anybody who wants to do this Mm -hmm. and i part of my job is i manage all of those stations so i recruit stations i train them and then during the hunting season i provide technical support because these stations, these agents are entering all that information into a website that they log into. Mm. So if they have any issues, if they have any questions, I am available 24-7. So because of that, I am not going to hunt opening day, opening week. I'm not going to hunt any Saturdays just because those are bigger hunt days. Mm. I am going to have a larger call volume. I need to be available for my agents. I do have employees that I can put on for me, you know, if I'm busy or unavailable. I just prefer to be available at times that, you know, I expect to get more calls. So uh, I'm already limiting myself by not going out on these like, you know, big ticket hunting days. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So you're not like mm-hmm. Lee where you can take the whole month off. I am not like Lee. I don't know if anybody's like Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, he was hilarious. He's like, who am I kidding? I take the entire month off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're, mm-hmm. you're yeah. an extreme yeah. hunter. Right. You know, I was ribbing him on his garb. Like he has, I don't know if you know about his whole Kuyu thing, mm-hmm. like his his gear and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I have Kuyu too. Oh, and okay. And so, so you bonded. We bonded on our little Kuyu experience, but it's a bittersweet type of thing for me because I'm like, I can't believe I'm spending the amount of money I am for this. You know, this is not right. You know, yeah. I could totally go to Walmart and get the same thing probably, you know, maybe two of them. <laughs> you know? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> or just Kuyu. It's a, it's a brand, a hunting, lightweight, mm-hmm. uh, and it's supposed to be really durable ah. hunting brand. They have different, uh, they have solids, but it's, there's a lot of camo options too. And it is, man. It's lightweight. And it's, it's good a, quality, it's but you're good. paying for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. There's a few brands up there, but that's Lee's big with his Kuyu. Like gotcha. He's, he's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, the fact that you don't know about Kuyu, I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm lazy I, hunter. No, that's, I'm, well, I'm actually impressed by that. I like that. That's kind of cool. It's like, yeah, I just kind of wear orange, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but they, 
have orange options too and show sure. you. Right. But yeah, anyway, Lee's hilarious as mm. far as I'm mm. concerned. Um, but hey, thank you for that. That's Absolutely. that was great. I I love to hear that. And just like what I was talking with Lisa, it's not that I want to shine a light on you because oh, she's a woman, right. you know. But I I feel like for some re- some people out there, it is a thing. Yeah, it's like, a hurdle. It's like yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like. I even asked her about like any kind of discrimination she's right. had because of like her her hound hunting and being in that environment. It's just not normal to see that, nope. you know, a woman out there getting getting on it the way she is. Yeah. And so I just thought that that was just super impressive mm-hmm. and be nice to motivate more women to hunt and to do those kinds of things. I feel that's all. So. So, yeah, thank you both for that, actually. Sure. So, um, but uh, I don't know if we did. I. Did I ask you about like uh, challenges with with uh, with deer in Maine, whatever, wh- whichever region? If you want to talk north or central, south, I'm not sure how you you've divvied up. Uh, you're divvied up here, other than the game units. But any like humongous challenges that you're seeing? I know that Lee talked about the the tick issue that really depressed me. I mean, a half yeah. half hour uh, TikTok that I was like, what? Super bummer. Yeah, totally. And uh, and then I mentioned, and I'll tell you about this after, you know, you, you tell me about your challenges, but I, uh, he talked, uh, I talked to somebody else recently that interjected something about ghost moose and we didn't put it in mm-hmm. that, that, um, that title of ghost moose, mm-hmm. but like some white moose and like, and, and the way they're over grooming and that kind of thing. But this particular person told me that he was working on a uh, a tick vaccine um, for that specific thing. Actually, he's working on whitetails in Michigan. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you more about that. Sure. It's a, it was my attempt to find a Axis deer scientist. <laughs> okay. and, I, and I hunted, I hunt, I've been hunting for months for someone, looking, scouring the internet. And finally, somebody called me like I was on someone's trail. I'm like, <laughs> Every university I would call, they'd be like, ah, he just left. He'll, he'll, I think yeah. he's working at this university now. And I'm in the airport and this guy calls me and says, hey, are you Jason? And I'm like, yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm Dr. Stones. I'm like, oh my God, I've been looking for you. <laughs> this guy is, he's, he, he, he would be the Axis deer expert in, in, Amer- in the Americas. Yeah. And not that he's entitled that, but he said, yeah, I guess I would be the guy, you know. <laughs> Reluctant. <laughs> yeah. Mantle yeah, to wear. <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> yeah. And then, but he's in, at Michigan State now mm. working on a tick vaccine, which mm-hmm. I thought was because he's the one who brought up the whole ghost moose thing. I was like, oh, so you know about this? He's like, yeah, I'm working yeah. on a vaccine for it. So <laughs> it's pretty neat. So I'm hopefully going to visit him and do a big one on access tier and that tick vaccine cool. should be pretty cool I, I, it fascinated me it, like i dropped everything i had in the airport i'm like tell me more about this vaccine you know because this this whole tick thing is uh yeah if you love wildlife if you're a hunter it's bothersome right i mean it's it's a problem it's very upsetting thankfully deer do not have the same issues with the specific tick we're talking about with winter tick and and moose, right? They do still get winter ticks on them, but they're much more adept at grooming than moose, so they're able to get the winter ticks off and don't have the same issues. Thankfully, I see. I see. So, uh, big challenges for deer, right? Um, it kind of varies north to south. Again, in northern Maine, it's an issue of at least for what hunters want, it's an issue of too few deer, and a lot of that is related to the loss of deer wintering habitat over a long period of time in the winter. Deer. In northern climates, they tend to rely on deer wintering areas to get through the winter, and these are areas that are softwoods dominated with good canopy closure, 
and that just intercepts snow so it's not as deep under the trees and then deer can uh, move around a little bit easier and establish trail networks it also provides thermal cover and keeps the ground temperatures a little warmer so they tend to hang out in this sort of cover but the issue with that is in Maine, where logging is a very, very big industry, mm. a lot of that cover has been removed over the years. So a lot of the habitat that they relied on to get through the winter no longer exists. And what we have now is kind of a weird dynamic where some of our deer are still wintering in deer wintering areas and a lot of others are just hanging out in towns where people are feeding them. Mm. So the wintering deer dynamic in northern Maine is just not what it naturally would be or what it was 50, 60 years ago. Just much different. Mm. Then in southern Maine, it's mostly an issue of overabundance, I would say, with deer. For the most part, not something we can't control through regulated hunting, but there are areas where we are currently struggling to do that. Mm. I'm really thankful in this job that we don't really have disease issues with deer in Maine. We don't have chronic wasting disease here yet. We don't have epizootic hemorrhagic disease here yet, though it's probably going to be here fairly soon. We don't have any tick issues that impact deer. So for the most part, we've got pretty healthy northern deer and I don't have to deal with deer disease issues thankfully. Gotcha. Can you explain those things that you just talked to? Let's start with CWD and then the second thing that you you discussed and and how how to spot it if you're out there hunting. I mean, or can you? Um, I've asked this before and I got kind of a... um, uh, A wonky answer to me was like they're not sure basically if it can be uh, you know, if a human being can get it from eating the the meat and, but just those things of like, you know, those challenges that are probably on the horizon for you. Hopefully CWD is not on my horizon in my career here in Maine. It's possible though. I see. Uh, it, why why CWD, is that? Why would you say that? It's been spreading pretty slow eastward and I'm hopeful that I can retire within 10 or 15 years. I see. So, so I hopefully don't have to deal with it in my lifetime, but uh, for a little background on that disease, CWD is chronic wasting disease. It's a disease called uh, caused by a prion, which is a, foldi- a misfolded protein. And that misfolded protein basically encourages other proteins to misfold. And then those misfolded proteins aggregate in the brain of a deer and cause these lesions, giving it kind of a spongy appearance. That's why it's in a family of diseases called BSEs or, or, or TSEs, transmissible spongy form encephalopathies. Mm. So transmissible is an important thing. That means it can be spread between animals, between deer. Spongiform refers to how it manifests in the brain. So your brain starts to look like a sponge. Not a good thing. Mm. And then encephalopathy is just referring to the head of the brain. So that really tells you all you need to know Mm. about these diseases. They're transmissible. They can be spread between animals. They impact the brain. And uh, they're 100% lethal in deer, which is pretty scary stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, It does take a while for symptoms to manifest in deer, though. So it's spread between deer through like saliva and excretions like that, but it has a really long incubation period of a a year to a year and a half. So you may have a deer that is infected with CWD. It's excreting and spreading the disease for a year or a year and a half before you even see symptoms. Mm. And then suddenly a year and a half later, it starts developing these slow symptoms where you start to see wasting condition in the body where it's getting really skinny and looking malnourished. You'll see these neurological symptoms associated with the holes in the brain, so they might be grinding their teeth or urinating or salivating a lot, drooping their head, unresponsive to people. And then if it does progress far enough along, it's going to kill the deer if something else doesn't kill it first. Mm. Can you can a hunter just right when they're infected in early, I don't know what early would be, but as, as soon as they're infected, is there a way to know? 
Not really. For the most part, it's detected through testing a dead deer that a hunter killed or a deer that was found dead. There have been some newer tests that look at like there's a, I think a rectal tissue biopsy of some sort that is a live test. But again, you got to get your hands on the deer if you want to do a live test. And that's not real easy to do, mm. especially if we're talking early in infection. It's probably not symptomatic. It's probably mm. in pretty good shape. It's going to be really hard to get your hands on a deer and live test it. That mm. would be more applicable to like a deer farm or something like that where they're farming deer and you want to test a live deer rather than kill it and test it or wait till it dies and test it. Mm. So for the most part, you're dealing with dead deer when you're testing them, unfortunately. How, how could I do that? Like, how could I bring it in or, or like have it get tested if I shot a deer here? Here in Maine, you can't really. We don't have a way for hunters to submit samples because we don't think we have CWD here. There are mm. some other states where hunters can submit their samples to specific labs to have it tested, uh, but not here. I see. What's the furthest east that you've seen, or yeah, the furthest, the closest state that you've seen it? Do you know? It was detected in New York in 2006 or so, somewhere around there, but they have not detected it since. I see. So right now, as far as we're aware, the nearest wild cases would be in Pennsylvania. There was a bit of a scare in 2018, I think, in Quebec, where they have a red deer farm up there, and they found CWD in that farm. Oh, my god! But all the surveillance activities since then in the surrounding area have not found any in the wild. So as far as we're aware, Pennsylvania is, is the closest. I see. And they, those states, and not that you would know this, but do they are they testing? I, I would think yes. so. Pretty yeah. much every, te- every state that has white-tailed deer is testing for it. I see. I ha- can't say all of them, but pretty much all of them. Has anyone, have you been pressured to test here? We do, test. we do test. We just don't oh, do. take submissions from hunters. Like if a hunter shoots a deer, they can't send us the lymph nodes and say, will you please test my deer? I see. Gotcha. What we do is we go around during the hunting season and opportunistically we'll collect a sample of about 500 um, lymph nodes or sets of lymph nodes per, de- or per year from mm-hmm. white-tailed deer and we'll send those. And that just gives us, we, we try to do a broad coverage of the state focusing on higher risk areas. And that just gives us kind of a blanket of surveillance so that hopefully when it does show up, we'll detect it pretty early. Because early detection is very important if you want to limit, limit prevalence of the disease and limit its spread. Wow. If you don't detect it until five years after it's made it into your state, it's probably going to be too widespread to really do anything about it. Wow, thank goodness. Uh, and so the second one that you mentioned, the second disease that you said is probably going to get here first? No, that's uh, EHD or epizootic hemorrhagic disease. It's a viral disease. It's spread by a little biting fly called a midge. And we don't have it right now because the midge is winter kill. Mm-hmm. But New Hampshire and Vermont have had their first cases both in the last few years. And so it's likely it'll probably show up here before too long. Uh, with that one, though, there's not really anything you can do as far as management. All you really do is you monitor the disease and you serotype it or whatever to tell what strain of the virus it is. But you can't really manage it. The reason you can't manage it is because it kills deer very, very quickly. Mm. Once you're infected by EHD, you've got maybe two days to live and then you're, you're dead. Oh my goodness. Some deer can survive and develop immunity and some deer populations that have had this infection for a very long time or this disease for a long time can develop some genetic immunity to it, but we'd have a totally naive population here, so there would be no immunity. Since it kills deer so quick though, and it's spread by a fly rather than between deer, it's usually very local in terms of impact. Mm. So you might get a handful of deer, a couple dozen deer that die here or there, and it won't really spread beyond that. So it's really just monitoring for it and then documenting where you do find it. I see. So pretty rare then. Um, And not a lot of, that fly is not going to kill a lot of deer. 
It, it shouldn't have population level impacts other than very locally. If you've sure. got a small die off of a few dozen in a very small area, that could affect some hunters' experiences. But for the most part, it's not going to be impacting like the statewide deer population. Gotcha, gotcha, cool. And so, did you mention something else after that second disease? Those are pretty much the, as far as the. That's kind of what we diseases. think of when we think of things that kill deer. There's all sorts of other weird issues that pop up with deer, like just things like fibromas and deer can have rabies and all sorts of little weird things. But for the most part, as far as things that kill deer, we're thinking CWD and EHD for diseases for the most part. I see. So you've been, uh, you've been lucky here. It's been a healthy, pretty healthy We're population. on the edge of the world here, kind of as far as <laughs> North America goes. So yeah. anything that starts elsewhere is going to take a while to get to us. So we tend to be sort of last with a lot of things. Oh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. It makes my job a little bit easier mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned the word edge species before for deer, and I've heard that a lot, you know, and I think a lot of people listening know what that is. They, they, or from what I understand anyway, from a layman's point of view is anywhere that's clear, uh, supposedly there's more nutrients with the sun hitting the soil, um, like, uh, deer or, uh, from what I've seen, they feed in those areas where the where the sun is hitting the soil and there's more nutrients in that area, um, and then uh, they come out on that edge. Is that correct? Kind That's of, a that, type that, of edge. Probably the more so, most common edge people think of when we talk about edge habitat. It's really where any two different habitat types meet, and that could be a field in a forest. It could also be softwoods versus hardwoods. It could be a big hill versus flatland. So okay. there's a lot of different types of edges, but yeah, a lot of people mostly associate it with a field. And forest, and it is basically they're hanging out in those areas for exactly the reasons you described. A lot of sun's hitting the ground, so there's a lot more of young regenerative growth and forbs and grasses and things there. And just in general, though, with edge, each type of habitat is going to have different resources available. So if you're mm. on an edge, you've kind of got access to sort of two different sets of resources. I see. So it's just more efficient to be on an edge. Really, you're going to find more food resources, more cover resources, more of everything. Really. I see. And the reason why I asked that is because Maine's so thick is, is, but are, are the deer the same as that you would find in anywhere else when they, because you call them all, I mean, collectively at edge species, is it, are they the same way here or are they in the, are they in the timbers, like, like deep in the timber? Yep. They certainly can live in the deep woods and there will be edges there though, but they will be more subtle. So you might have like a really good oak stand. And then it may be an edge between an oak stand and some softwoods trees. And that's an edge, but a lot of people would just see trees, so they wouldn't interpret it as an edge. But deer do still relate to edges. It's just more obvious when there's like clear cuts or, you know, fields or even lawns and things like that. Mm-hmm. Going from lawn to forest, for example, is a really widely used deer edge. If you look at like a map of where we're at here in Hudson, Maine, the only edge you're really going to find is people's yards. Mm. And deer use people's yards a lot. When we first moved in here and hadn't done any property manipulation, habitat manipulation, pretty much all the deer sign we had on our property was localized around the yard and the front part of the property. That's where we had the most resources for deer. So that's where they were kind of hanging out for us. Gotcha. Um, As a new hunter, you know, like I say seven years in or so, I... Uh, and I walk into any area, you know, forested, you know, fields, whatever. I'm constantly looking at the plants and looking at like, uh, you know, uh, what a deer could be eating. 
And I'm and I'm always confused. I'm always <laughs> just like, what are they eating? Are they, well, what are they eating? Everything. Now? Well, to make it easy for you. <laughs> really? Really? Seriously? Deer, uh, that's another kind of thing that makes deer so incredibly adaptable and resilient. They can eat just about everything. Not quite everything, but very close to it. I see. Jeez, just, that makes it even worse. Like, there's definitely more. There's things they'll gravitate towards right. that are more palatable. Uh, and if they have a kind of a gradient of like really good palatable stuff like sugar maples or something and on the other end of the spectrum like hemlock or something, they're going to gravitate towards a sugar maple. But see. they can eat all of it. It's just they're going to focus on sort of the best, most palatable stuff while it's there. Once that resource is depleted, they'll kind of go down the list and eat things that are less palatable. So they might have 200 plants they can eat, but they're really focusing on kind of their preferred dozen species or so. I see. In Maine, is there like, like steak or is there like, like, <laughs> like I love steak. Like, is there like yep. a steak or is there a, a donut or is there something that <laughs> donut. Is, what are they eating? That is like there, is there a pizza for a deer? Like, Oh my God, there's pizza over there. I'm running over there. I'm going to eat that. Like what, what is that for deer? Or is there something like that? Yep. I'll, I'll say, I'll use the old response of there's a lot of variability again. If you're in a really kind of mixed landscape where there's some agriculture, their pizza is going to be like a soybean field or someone's agricultural products. They're going to gravitate towards that stuff. If you're in more of this type of habitat where it's more big woods, maples and ashes, in particular sugar maple to a lesser extent red maple. And then in the fall, of course, anywhere you can find a good stand of oak trees, they're going to really hit that hard. Mm. If you're out in the big woods, I couldn't tell you as well. They're kind of going to take whatever they can get. If you're in someone's yard, hostas or something like that, <laughs> they'll eat people's hostas or, you know, whatever ornamental plant they're very sentimental and protective of. That's the one the deer are going to focus on. I see. And they, they of course, eat fruit, right? They oh, like yeah. If there's fruit around and like that, that would be like their candy. Yeah. And we have a thing. ton of like, a, I don't know if I'd use the word escaped apple trees, but we have a lot of naturalized apples that probably once were on someone's old farm and now they're just spread along roadsides pretty much throughout the entire state. I see. So... It, it's nice that they have access to a lot of apples everywhere, but they are kind of concentrated along roads, and that's not ideal for deer to be feeding along roads all the time. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of apples in Maine don't have a lot of other fruit options. I think there's probably some pear here and some plums and cherries and things, but for the most part, we're talking apples. I see. Would you find them in berry fields like you would bears and stuff too? Like would they be eating like strawberries and... Not as much. They'll more focus on like the foliage of the rubus species or like the raspberries, blackberries. They'll eat the leaves more. They will eat the fruit though. Mm. And they will dig up and eat blueberries and cause problems in blueberry barrens, but they're not as big an issue as things like turkeys and geese and things in the blueberry fields. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. Like, yeah. I, I like I said, I'm confused. Like from day one, like even to today. Like I'm looking outside right now, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, it's hard when everything is food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything yeah. is food for them, which is interesting. Um, are you, I know that from what I've known about the main main uh, hunting culture since I've been here, doesn't seem any way. I mean, people are happy with a trophy, but it doesn't seem any way that trophy is like the the main focus for hunting. It seems like it's more of like the you know, a cultural thing to bring families together, put food on the table. Uh, just part of life here in Maine is uh, is hunting. So I'm sure you get people from out of state that try to come up here looking for like trophy quality animals, right? Are there any areas that are known for that here in Maine or uh, and or managed that way? Like uh, is there like a certain, there's certain units to where you're like, okay, 
this is a big uh, outfitting area. There's a lot of outfitters here. Um, they, uh, this is how we we do things here in this area. We limit, you know, buck tags or whatever. Um, is there is are there areas like that? Trof- kind of trophy areas in Maine. Most of our guides that guide deer, I think, are mostly guiding hunts up north. Just mostly, that's a land access issue. If you're guiding someone, you don't want to be constrained to 40 acres. Mm. And so most of our big land tracks are up north. Up north, you're not going to have a lot of deer, but you're going to have much bigger deer as far as body size goes. And what I've noticed, at least coming from the Midwest, in the Midwest, when we're talking about a trophy buck, people are thinking big rack. But here in Maine, trophy buck is, oh, was it 200 pounds or not? They're all about body weight mm-hmm. here, which was totally foreign to me when I moved out here. We, we even me. have like a club called the Big Buck Club. It's run by the Maine Sportsman Journal or something along those lines. And if you shoot a buck that dresses out over 200 pounds, they'll give you a patch like a special recognition, and then they'll record you in their their logs of bucks over 200 pounds. So it's really a weight thing, it seems like, for trophies in Maine. We don't manage any districts specifically for trophies, though. We don't have any antler restrictions or buck harvest restrictions anywhere, anything like that. So it really kind of depends on the type of hunt you want or what type of trophy you're looking for if you're a trophy hunter. If you want a big body deer, you're probably looking to get an older deer and a farther north deer. So you're probably hunting the northern half of the state or the western mountains. If you want a big rack, there are some towns in coastal Maine and south central Maine where you do see some pretty big racks. I don't know that it's a like a specific reason for that. I think just certain people have a few hundred acres and they manage them for trophy bucks. And so those handful of people really have a lot of big bucks on their property and take one every year. But for the mm-hmm. most part, just anywhere in southern and central Maine, you're going to have kind of the same source of deer at your disposal. I see. Why are the, why are the big bodies up there in the northern area? There's kind of a lot that goes into that. One of the big factors is age. Since there's a lot less hunting pressure in the north, a deer is going to tend to live quite a bit longer. I see. And, you know, a deer will reach, like, its peak body weight around age five or six years old. You're just not going to find that in southern and central Maine hardly. Mm-hmm. Our average buck in southern and central Maine lives to be about two years old. So you're not going to have many of these gigantic bucks. And then there's also a scientific principle called Bergman's Rule, which relates to uh, body, essentially surface area versus body mass, where it's more heat efficient to have more body mass per surface area. So you tend to have kind of bigger, rounder bucks up north that conserves heat better. Mm. And then as you go further south, you have these smaller deer. So that's why we're talking about Florida with the Keys deer being 50 pounds and the yeah. northern Maine buck being 200, 250 pounds. It's just much more heat efficient to have kind of a big, round barrel body. I see. Is that why they're he- the people up here are heavier too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Do not I'll answer. Stick to deer for that <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is it the food? I don't know. Uh, no, that's funny. Um, as soon as you said key deer, I'm like, oh, there's down there wearing surf shorts and, mm. and sunglasses, <laughs> and then you got this buck up here with a big winter coat on. Parka. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool. Um, man, so do you guys hunt for anything else other than deer? Do you hunt moose or bear? No. Never have. We've Thought about I've it? dabbled in small game and grouse. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. a terrible, terrible wing shot, so I'm not real motivated to do any more of that. And I don't have a dog. I have a dog, but not a bird not hunting bird dog. dog. So mm-hmm. especially in this type of cover, it can be really hard to find stuff. So it's nice to have a dog who can sniff them out for you. Yeah. I've done a little bit of small game and bird and I'm thinking of branching out into turkeys just because we have so many on the property but I've really been pretty tunnel visioned on deer i see any thoughts of moose or bear or anything like that or or even hunting out of state have you thought about that i've hunted out of state in the midwest a lot because that's where i grew up hunting 
I don't really desire to travel anywhere for like in a safari adventure type hunt. I'm not really into that. Yeah. Bear. <laughs> Everyone has their own thoughts and opinions. So my personal opinion with bear, though, is they're just a tad too human-like for me to ever want to shoot one. Just watching their behavior is just a little too human-like. It, it disturbs me a little, the thought of killing one. So I couldn't do that myself. Moose is a ton of work. It's daunting. Really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a big big hurdle to moose hunting is it's a ton of work. It's If you take an animal, you're dealing with 700 pounds of animal, whether you like it or not. And yeah. Unless you're a very motivated hunter, which as I think we've established, I'm not. Yeah. I'm probably not going to want to deal with a 700-pound animal. So. Or paying for a guide to do it, which again, doesn't appeal. Right. Yeah, because yeah, I don't think I'd want to do that very rare hunt like moose. It's tough to get a moose permit. I don't think I'd want to do that just on my own skill and knowledge. I'd want a guide to show me where to go and how to do it. Sure. So, yeah, there's different barriers, and uh, deer are pretty nice, easy hunt. They're very accessible in my backyard, so that's kind of what I've stuck with. Yeah, have you had the, the moose meat? I've had or... moose and bear meat, yeah. I enjoyed both. I think bear meat tends to, tends to get mixed reviews, I feel like, but I've only ever had it in roast form, and it's been really, really good. Yeah. I think a lot of it depends on how you deal with the fat, because they have a lot of fat, and if you don't deal with it correctly, it can really make the meat taste kind of gnarly. Yeah, I, I hear bear is really good. I love it, yeah. Yeah, I've never had it. Uh, and I've never had moose either. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, yeah, so the the whole bear thing, uh, <laughs> you're not the first You're not the first to say that. You know? Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Like, if you listen to some of the other podcasts, even with Lisa and uh, um, with Randy's too, yep. like I mentioned, um, yeah, we're, we're talking about bear behavior. And mm-hmm. to your point, I'm... I'm like, oh, yeah, I can watch a bear for a long period of time, you know, and just I just kind of watch their movements and that. Um, and it's for me, it's a lot of it has been, uh, or most of it, all all of it really. Uh, uh, um, yesterday was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday was I saw my first bear. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh cool. So other than that, it was it's all been TV anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I could watch them and like, wow, look at you know. And so I agree with you. But I've heard so many stories of like people just like you that are like, yeah, there's something about them. Yeah, they they either say that that they're a little too human like, or they or they just don't want to say that. They say something else. They're like, there's something about it, you know. It's, and uh, and I I'm going on one in October, nice. uh, my first bear hunt hunt in October, and I feel similar to what you're feeling about it because I'm like, man, I'm definitely going, but mm-hmm. I'm also like, um, I'm also torn on you know, when it comes to the moment, like yeah. it's uh, this big buildup of like watching them for all these years and, you know, listening to a lot of the stories. And I, I work in a place in uh, New Mexico where there's a lot of native American population mm-hmm. and listen to those people talk about bears and, you know, the reverence for them and stuff like that. I'm wondering if I could even pull the trigger now. I'm like, Oh man, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm working myself through it mm-hmm. already. But it's interesting you say that the uh, you really feel like they're close to human beings, like and you know I know when when I, there's I think I'm projecting and anthropomorphizing a lot, but when you watch a video of a bear, like I know the silly YouTube videos of like playing in a pool and they're playing with their toes and throwing a ball up and down, I just yeah I can't reconcile that sort of activity and. I just can't. <laughs> I just can't do it. Yeah. I guess if you watch enough of that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah it only <laughs> takes one video like that when you're like, geez, that looks like a little kid playing in a pool. Yeah. I, I'd have a really hard time. I have a hard enough time pulling the trigger on a deer. I just couldn't do it on a bear, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then you can also watch a bear like tearing up, tearing uh, another 
like a, a deer falling apart too. Like sure. it's kind of like they're they're beast. Or I've seen videos of of uh, boars killing like cubs and killing like uh, sows yeah. and stuff like that for food. It's been crazy. So they they're beasts. You Absolutely, know? yeah. You know, and so are we, right? I mean, at to, uh, to some degree, we're domesticated. <laughs> but, but what? Back in the day, we we weren't so domesticated, right? You know, so I think I'll wait a while before I do the human hunt, though. I'm yeah, not really <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what you're let, pitching here, let's, but <laughs> let's, let's let's wait forever on that one. But when they are hanging, when bears are hanging too and skinned, have you ever seen them yeah. that way? It's odd. Mm-hmm. It's odd, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, they don't look like a big roly poly animal anymore. It no. just looks like a skinny little critter. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or or man. It looks human. Yeah. Well, yeah. So again, I provide you know this technical support to my game tagging stations, and I had a call one year where again you know the hunter is bringing in the whole animal, but he brought it in scunned, so there's no fur, and it was all wrapped up. And the woman called and she said, "Do I tag this? It could be a human." Like, <laughs> you, said, you, you, what's scunned? Scunned is it's the term for skinning them out, so I there's see. no. Yeah, the hide is gone. I see, so it I just see. looks like flesh and anatomically it looks kind of human and she felt weird. And I said, yep, here's, here's, you can contact a warden. Um, go ahead and, you know, tag it out. Hunter's probably doing the right thing. Let's not make them wait. But if you feel weird, go for it. Yeah, call, call it in. So wow, I'm sure it was a bear. But again, you know, just yeah. it's odd when they're deferred. They look, they look kind of like a man. Yeah. And it weirded her out. Yeah. Yeah. So your take on that too for bear, you, you probably wouldn't go there? Not for those reasons. Uh, mind reasons, again, it's just uh, more hurdles. Um, bears, it's almost impossible to harvest them without a method other than walking around the woods. You're using bait, you're using dogs, at least in Maine, um, and you probably should use a guide. And so any one of those things is just a bit of a hurdle for me, you know. So, That's okay. a really good point too, is the baiting is just, oh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot yeah. of money. And again, not that hunting deer is necessarily inexpensive, but we're doing it more from, you know, kind of that economical meat on the table thing. Like a bear hunt to me feels like more of an experience because again, the money going into bait, if you just do that on your own and the time, like that's just, you've got to be going out pretty frequently. you got to be putting down hundreds of dollars into the, you know, putting bait on the landscape that doesn't appeal to me. So, yeah. yeah. And then connecting with, you know, I know a lot of people who run bear dogs and all of that. I'm sure I could, you know, link up with one of them and pay them, you know, a cheaper price than maybe some other people would. But again, just there's enough added levels to me and it just doesn't appeal. So obviously, you know, if I had a bear like tearing into my chicken coop, I would yell for Nate to get a gun, like, you know, I, let's defend the property. And then we would use the meat. Absolutely. Sure. But going in intentionally and going hunting, like, eh, it just, there's no drive for me to do it. And because there's financial and time limitations, great. I'm probably not going to do it. Understood yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with moose then, just the, yeah. the amount of resources and the it's time. It's a lot. And mm-hmm. the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, maybe when you guys have a family, like a big family. I mean, <laughs> all right, everyone's. More, you grab a leg. You grab. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's more of a family affair, sure, right? Sure. A moose. <laughs> That's yeah, what it if sounds. you can get four or five guys on a moose, right. I think it'd be pretty easy to handle. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So your experiences as wildlife biologist uh, for those who are thinking about um, 
you know, getting into the field. Uh, I had a long conversation with uh, Oren, my very first mm. podcast, who is the <laughs> deer manager for New Mexico. Um, and I, one specific question that I asked him is that me personally, I'm a high school dropout. That's how, you know, I, I was never good in school. And so math was, uh, you know, my Achilles heel. I mean, I could write, I could do, you know, I could labor through some other topics. I loved science. Um, but when it came down to math, like it was really tough for me. So somebody who's maybe thinking about, um, especially at this day and age, like, you know, I feel like a lot of people are wanting to be outside more. Um, I don't know. I just kind of get that feeling. Um, and so your profession, when, when I look at it from my standpoint of what I do being inside all the time, I'm envious, you know, I'm like, man, that, and they are around the animals constantly. They're doing research, which I, I think is fascinating. I also feel like you're kind of on, not kind of to me, you're unsung heroes because you're, you're doing things that people aren't even looking at, you know, they're like just living their daily lives and you're just, you're advocating for, for wildlife and, you know, and it's, uh, to me, it's admirable. And especially the fact that not, a lot of people don't even see that it's going on. They're just, oh, it's a wildlife biologist. A lot of people don't even know what you do. They're like, yeah, they just, they're out in the woods. But they think we're wardens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, oh yeah. Don't they have a gun? Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that. <laughs> That's like, my joke is whenever anyone asks me if I'm a warden, I say, no, I'm a biologist. It takes more school and they don't give me a gun. So <laughs> yeah, well, there's your gun. Your I'm hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> your education is your gun. Um, but yeah, um, just thoughts on your, your careers and maybe somebody who's listening who, whether they're in a career that they don't like, I can speak from my point of view, like in, in a career that they're like, huh, you know, thinking about, man, what can I do to, to be outside more and, or, you know, a, you know, a young, you know, girl or, or, or boy coming up saying, ah, you know. Uh, I've thought about it, but I'm not too good at school. I don't like being in the classroom and that kind of thing. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, a few things I'd offer. Uh, first would be to do whatever you can to get a very realistic and broad picture of what the field is like. Because a lot of people, like you mentioned, spending time outdoors and handling animals. For most people in this field of work, that's really a pretty small minority of the work that they do. Mm. And a lot of that type of work is kind of on the front end of your career. We are more focused on field work and gathering data as opposed to later on when you're more coordinating those sorts of efforts. Mm. So a lot of people do think of that. I want to get my hands on animals, be outdoors, do stuff like that. But a lot of that's kind of entry-level stuff, and it's not typically what you're doing full-time in sort of a career track type of position. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested in the field to, at least very first among you know all the different things you should do, hook up with someone who's in the field or in this career field, rather, and you know, follow them for a day if you can, or at least interview them, something like that, just to get a broader perspective and a more complete understanding of what exactly they do, because they're going to find it's not just catching animals all day. Mm. It's a pretty small part of things. And then I'd also say it's a pretty competitive field, mm. a very competitive field that can be hard to get into, and it really helps to be flexible. Yeah. If you're stuck on, I want to work with wolves or tigers, you're going to have a really hard time like, finding a job Or I want to stay like in that. New England. Like, like we said, we've, I mean came from California, he came from Minnesota, just being able to be like, yeah, I will move anywhere. Hmm. As our careers have progressed, we've, you know, focused in on certain regions we've liked, but in the beginning, I, I will go anywhere. Yeah. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And not make money for a really long time. <laughs> wow. So my, that first job in Wisconsin, uh, there were periods where I was working over a hundred hours a week 
and in they paid you a stipend of $600 a month. And I know jobs that have paid less than that. Yep. Often housing is provided and sometimes that housing is atrocious, you know? And mm. so just being flexible, like, yeah, I, I, and these jobs, you know, they're all short term. So eight month, nine month, that's your position. You will move your whole life and live there for, you know, several months and you may have no plan for what you're doing after that. Um, mm. That was very typical. You know, people would ask, oh, what are you doing? You know, after this job, I have no idea. A lot of these jobs, especially early on in the career, those heavy fieldwork positions are only posting them like a few months out. So you're not able to plan. So hmm. if that interests you, you know, having a nomadic lifestyle, just being very open handed with where you're going to be and what you're going to do and where you're going to live. You know, a, a lot of people wash out in the beginning because they can't do that. And hmm. financially, they can't do that. You know, if you have a lot of student loans, if you don't have any like financial support at home, if you have other responsibilities, at least the fieldwork part, it's not realistic, hmm. so, which is hard. It's a shame, but yeah, it sounds it's what it terrible is. actually now. <laughs> we don't want to discourage <laughs> no. anybody no. from pursuing this career field. Just understand that you should really go into it with open eyes and right. meet with some people who are in the field and get a really clear picture of what you're in for and figure out what you want to do and whether or not you can support your lifestyle doing mm -hmm. that because mm -hmm. it's, it's a pretty small field, as you've mentioned in the state of Maine. Like even here, yeah. if you mention someone's name, people know each other. So it's a small field. There's not a ton of opportunity, but there are a lot of people who want to be in this field, and it it can be it can be daunting. It can be tough to to find your way in. Mm. So yeah, have realistic expectations for what we do, and then be very diligent about getting to know people and trying to get an idea what the field is actually like. Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't have a job that had benefits and health insurance until I was 29. So wow. yeah. Wow. So other than being a wildlife biologist, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, in a way, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, who, who else do you work with that's, that works outside? I mean, other than wardens, right? There's the, the warden, the game wardens work outside a ton. There's fisheries biologists. Uh, so if you're more into... Foresters. You know, yep, forestry. What's a forester? Mm. We manage game, they manage trees. Ah, I see. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, they study study trees. I yep, guess, study like trees, develop yeah. management plans for properties, and advise them on how to um, remove timber from their property to meet whatever management goals they have. Whether that's producing timber for profit or to promote wildlife, whatever the case may be. Mm. So yeah, they specialize in the trees that grow the animals, and we specialize in the animals. I see. Gotcha. So if you're somebody who says I just want to study polar bears, you're you're in for a long haul. I mean. Okay. And it, yes. yeah. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. yeah. It's not impossible, no. but it's going to be very difficult because mm -hmm. they're a very charismatic species. They have mm -hmm. a lot of eyes on them. A lot of people are interested in them. Mm -hmm. And there's only a handful of people in the world really who work specifically with polar bears. Yeah. So to be one of those handful of people, it's, it's going to be tough. It's a lot. Uh, wow. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, I don't know what to say now. I was I was I was hoping you were gonna make it sound like Disney World, but uh, well, one of the cool things I will say <laughs> is that when you've progressed far enough in your career, you can really kind of set your own schedule. Yeah. And if you want to do math, which you hate, if you want to work with people, you can do that. If you want to spend time outdoors, there's always something you can do related to your work that's not just wasting time outdoors. Like there are things you can be doing in the field. So if you want to spend some time in the field, spend a week doing field work, you can do that. 
mm-hmm. if you want to. It's just that's not going to be your whole job handling animals. I see. So that was the first uh, striking part of you talking about it is that you know once you become a you know a, a tenured you know, wildlife biologist, what would you say the amount of time versus field time versus office time you're spending? It depends on the individual, like Very Nate said. Highly. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And if you have like. We're a management agency, so we don't specialize in research. But if you do have a research project ongoing, that's going to take a lot of your time. So like Lee, who you talked about with his moose stuff, his projects, his coloring projects are kind of winding down now. But in the past few years, he's been right in the heat of his coloring projects. And his winter was pretty much coloring moose. And then Mm -hmm. his spring was doing mortality investigations in the field and things like that. So if you've got a project ongoing, you can be very heavy from like half your time in the field, half in the office Mm. to your research projects are all wrapped up. You're maybe in the field 5% of the time or 10% and the rest of the time you're in the office. So it varies quite a lot depending on what you have going on Mm -hmm. and kind of what your needs are uh, for managing the species. If there's data that needs to be collected in the field to improve your management of the species, then you'll develop a project and you'll spend more time in the field gathering those data. But if things are kind of smooth, you're in sort of homeostasis at the moment, not doing any research or anything like that, probably going to be in the office more. I see. I see. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. Um, wow. Okay. That's kind of cool. I, uh, you know, from that first podcast, I was thinking about it like, hey, this is something I want to do. <laughs> and now it's like, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll just be a hunter. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. But yeah, thanks for being uh, candid about that. You know, well, And I will say, because we, a lot of our field work, we push and pull for volunteers and we call them citizen scientists or civilian scientists. Mm-hmm. And so I would say every agency that I've ever worked for has some form of citizen science. So if it's just, you know, like taking pictures of butterflies and submitting those up to contacting a species specialist um, and saying, hey, I know you're banding waterfowl the month of August. Is that something I could tag along with? Um, Pretty much every state agency you know, um, encourages that to some degree. So yeah, if especially like when, again, uh, when I was working, you know, in other states, and we would have, you know, rigorous field work. People would take their vacation from work. They would take a week off and they would just come out in the field with us and catch deer fawns or whatever. I mean, it's it's intense work. But, uh, yeah, they were willing and able and they're free labor. Usually state governments don't say no to that. So, That's pretty cool. Yeah, if you just want to be, even be reaching out to, like, your local, you know, state agency, regional biologists and just asking, hey, is, is there anything, like, I can help with, I can assist with, like, I'm gung-ho, you know, this is, you know, the level of familiarity I have with, like, hiking, you know, doing backcountry work there could be opportunities for that so it may not be your career but it could be a hobby no that sounds amazing that's a that's yeah thanks for offering that that's uh and most state agencies are like that yeah in my experience yes pretty Mm -hmm. cool i have two community science deer projects right now so if there's someone out there who's super interested in deer maybe they're not working with deer but there are two projects where you can collect and submit data to us that is important in our management there's opportunities to get involved in wildlife management, the dream deer management, even if you're not specifically a deer manager. Mm-hmm. And we rely on that really because pretty small staff. We need a lot of data from the whole state. We can rely on the manpower that comes with reaching out to citizens to collect data for us. That's huge. Oh, that's cool. Like instead of a staff of a few dozen people collecting data, if I have access to the 1.3 million people in Maine collecting data for me, 
mm. or the 130,000, 150,000 deer hunters, like that's so much more data collection power than using staff. That's neat. So I'm a big proponent of community science. Some people are uh, less into it and uh, prefer to collect data themselves, but I love community science. I think it's a huge, powerful data collection tool. I just thought about something, and it's selfishly, okay, um, about like hunting. Uh, I wonder if like, is there, <laughs> this is, this is going to sound very selfish, okay? Let me just preface, preface that by, by We're saying ready. this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is there a way that like a hunter, or have you heard of this? Like uh, like somebody who's like really into hunting could volunteer their time for you for like, uh, I don't say like extra tags or anything, or but some something more of like a, um, I, I guess this would probably be more for like a, like a, like, like big, is there an incentive? Exactly. If you do this for me, I'll give this for you. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if I, if I, if somebody gave you 500 hours of their time, just volunteer time, or I don't know how many hours you want to say yep. and helping you with your research, could that equal, uh, an extra tag? Could it equal, uh, I don't know, like, a priority in the moose drawing an extra draw yeah maybe i don't i don't know how you do it here but nothing crazy like oh my god show me where the biggest bucks are and let me just shoot them you know like nothing but something for an incentive for people who are going to actually give you their time and and yeah the incentive is i'm helping the state i'm helping with this but then you know for for somebody else yeah they maybe just need that extra little shove of sure. like, hey, we'll also give you this mm-hmm. type of thing. No? We don't currently have anything like that in Maine. It's generally the preference of our agency that if we're going to have someone putting in those kinds of hours for us, that they just be someone who's paid through our agency. I see. So if we had someone who's willing to give 500 hours of their time or something like that, they're just going to be paid staff. Yeah. We're not going to be paid staff. We don't I want see. people volunteering those kind of hours. We want to pay them. Yeah. I don't. I, I just don't know what the, uh, the uh, what would you call that, the... Um, uh, the budget is for your agency. Mm-hmm. It might be big. I don't know. But I mean, it sounds like if, especially if they're working on small staffs, the budget might be smaller. I don't know. But but yeah, just that was my first thought. A very selfish thought. Can of, I get some like, out of that? Can I, can <laughs> Why I, not? Can you give me something? No. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, that's just a... I will say too that we do have a lot of people who are sportsmen and we kind of know them through that and they end up being people that are kind of on staff for us. Like I have cool. some folks who collect biological data from hunter killed deer for me every year. And we kind of got to know them through regional biologists who knew them from their sporting activities in the regions. And now they just collect data for us and we pay them to do it. Oh, cool. So there are opportunities for things like that, but we don't have like a program where someone can log their hours and get free tags or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. Interesting though that, you know, interesting selfish thought. <laughs> um, just because it's not happening here doesn't mean it's not happening in new mexico or something yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know there's you know i've like i was telling we were talking before the podcast there's every agency that i've interact with has their personality sure mm-hmm. they have their just character of like how they run their agency and it's fascinating like yeah. you this maine has been the most friendly has been the most like they say liberal but it's been like, as soon as I got in touch with, um, I think it was Keel. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. As soon as I talked to Keel, it was just like, it's on. Like, come on Flood down. Floodgates open. Come on down and talk. And uh, we appreciate you being here. Just come on down. You know, talk Keel's to this a person. southerner, so he's got that southern hospitality yeah. thing. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a name. Kind of a weird gumbo of people in this interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for offering us up, Keel. Uh, no, it was, the, and so I had that all the way from, like I told you about my experience with Alaska where right. they're real busy during the summertime and they're just out, you know, in the field. So it's hard to get a hold of them. So, 
Um, and then, you know, Utah and New Mexico and everybody has their like little thing, you know, yeah. of, of regional quirks. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. so I, I've been to your home. I've been to, uh, to, uh, um, Randy's house. Sure. Uh, yeah. I might go to supper Ooh. for oh the boy. first time <laughs> at, at, at Lee's maybe I might be doing <laughs> supper for the first time. So everybody's been so uh, like, this is a lot of hospitality. New Mexico, they've been very kind, but it's always been at the headquarters. Mm. Sure. Yeah, come to headquarters. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, come on to the headquarters, sit in the boardroom and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's like, it's really interesting, mm. you know. I just feel like this is more, uh, more me, more cult, more like, <laughs> more, I don't know. I don't know what you'd call this. Just like, just cool. Like really, really uh, welcoming and, you know, type of, uh, type of culture that you have here. Not just about, uh, you know, hunting, but like you know, management, that part of it too. Like everybody's very passionate about, about Maine, if yep. you know, the Maine woods. So, so it's been great. Can we take a quick like pause Yeah. while I hit the restroom? Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. We're back. Thanks for letting me take that break. Um, and so, um, we were as always chatting off off air a little bit. <laughs> All the good stuff's off air. Sorry, guys. Yeah, oh, yeah. Too bad. Yeah, but um, you know, I can bring it on air now. So, I, <laughs> so uh, what we were chatting about was um, some of the frustrations that I've uh, that I've felt as a as a as a hunter, even being new on set, in that some of the regulations that have been made, and I've I've looked at it throughout the states, and in the states vary. You know, um, whether you're left leaning, right leaning, however, you know, wh whoever the governor is or what your commission is like or however the politics are in your state, unfortunately, plays into from what I've seen anyway, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, have played into how game is managed in that state. Right. Um, some states are more trophy heavy. You know, um, there's there's trophy units and. Uh, depending on how, you know, passionate you are about that kind of thing. A lot of people are, there's challenges for them as far as how things are managed, how hunting is, is possibly in some states anyway, if you're a tr uh, somebody who's looking more at quality and trophy, um, how it's moving into a more, I can't afford to, to do that. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then states like what it seems like for Maine anyway, it, more of a, um, just a hunting culture to where that's not the focus. And it seems like there's, there's a healthy game population. There's, um, there's a healthy predator population. There's, there's a lot there for everyone. If you participate in the process and you understand how things are, are how rules are being made. And, um, so with that, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, Lee touched on this a little bit, but uh, we can go over it uh, again. But how things are, are, how decisions are made. If you are a hunter that is either frustrated with how tags are allocated, how many uh, deer and or moose or bear or however things are going within the state and you're, you're upset about something or you, you find that in your area, you're not, cor you're not seeing the correlation. Why is the state making this decision? Because I'm clearly seeing this out in the field. How can you, uh, have your voice heard? Can, you know, can, can they call you directly? What is the, the, the way for somebody to get involved? And again, I'll preface that by saying, 
hey, these hunters have a full-time job. These hunters have families, right? They, yeah. There's things that they have to do. So it's, it'd be difficult for them to like dedicate resources into like, okay, now I have to go to this person and that person and then make this and then mail this off and email this person. If that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. But um, I guess long-winded question of how to get involved to get a better, better experience, uh, better outdoor experience or, or hunting experience in Maine. Yeah, there's a ton to cover there. Yeah. Uh, I think at the very front of things, the easiest way to get involved, like you mentioned, is just to reach out. And if I get an email from someone, I'm reading every single one of those emails and I reply to about 95, 99, very almost all of those emails, I'm going to reply to those. And I do take them all very seriously. And I'm sure that's the case with game managers anywhere else as well. Like we want input and we want to hear from people. Might not always give you the answer you want, but we'll give you an answer. And I think what really helps, a lot of times when someone emails me or they call me and they're upset about this or that, if I just explain why something is the way it is, I'm just transparent about the process we work through and what influenced a particular decision, knowing how that decision was made is really a great comfort to a lot of people. And usually all the steam that they had coming into the call just goes right out after that. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, thank you for at least explaining that. That at least makes sense to me. Because a lot of people, they just want to be heard and they want to know that there's someone on the other end who's listening to them, who knows that they feel a particular way. And whether or not you agree after the call on the best way forward doesn't usually matter all that much. So yeah, definitely reach out to game managers in your jurisdiction that can help a lot and then as far as like rules and laws and things go goes i don't know if that's the same everywhere but here in maine at least we have kind of two different processes that we work through we have a rulemaking process and rules are essentially things that our department has control over versus a law which is something that the state legislature the state has control over so you've got your rules and you've got your laws and each of those they go through a different process to make rules and to edit rules and to make laws and to edit laws for rulemaking the proposals can come from a citizen. So if a citizen wants a particular thing to happen uh, that relates to an authority the department has, they can work with someone to draft a rulemaking proposal, send it to our department, and they can work through that process just like us. Like a new department rule or a change to, the, to a department rule doesn't have to come from our staff. It can come from the public. So that's a very clear, concrete way to get involved in that process is to just develop an idea and submit a rulemaking proposal. Hmm. That proposal actually goes through kind of a three-step process, though, where the first step of the process, we're just sort of um, going, what the, going through what the proposal is, what the proposed change is, and then we give it about a month to marinate with what's called their advisory council so they can just kind of hear that idea. And then in the second step, about a month later, uh, the second step of that process, we'll kind of talk about the rationale for that change or that rulemaking proposal, go through the background, really explain what's in the proposal and why it's there. And then they have another month. And then at the last step, they kind of deliberate and they can vote on a rulemaking proposal. So it's kind of a three-step process where a proposal can come from our staff or it can come from the public. And it works through a council, essentially, where they have to listen to the proposal, kind of understand the background and the rationale for it, and then ultimately vote on it. Mm. Then there's a legislative process, and that deals with things that are kind of out of the hands of our department. We don't have authority over things that are in state law. We can work to change state laws, but we don't actually have those authorities. So if you want to change a state law, that's a much different process. And similarly, our department can develop law proposals or uh, just a citizen or a hunter. They can call a legislative representative. So you'd find out whatever your district is in your state, figure out who your rep is and call them and talk about your idea. And if they're supportive, they can work with you as a constituent to develop a bill. And a bill would just be a change to a law or the creation of a new law. 
And so hunters who are really passionate about a particular issue, if they have a good rationale and they build that up and justify it with data and, and reports and things, they can develop a bill just like our department can. Mm. And so that's a different process, though, where the bill is presented to a legislative committee. They tend to kind of have a public hearing where they hear input from the public and read the bill and stuff like that. And then we have what's called a work session where we come together, we sort of synthesize all the public feedback that we've gotten, talk about the perspectives of the legislative committee based on the input they're getting from their constituents, and then they can go ahead and vote on a bill. So there's different processes, but there's a lot of ways for people to get involved. So it's not just, I don't like this rule, I don't like this law, I'm just going to be upset about it. It's If that's the case, you should get involved. You should tell someone about it, tell them what your ideas are, tell them why you have a particular belief or why you think a particular change should be made. And then if they're supportive and they agree that you have a good point, you can work with those people in, in your agency or a legislative rep to develop a bill or a rulemaking proposal and actually take your changes from just being ideas in your head to actually maybe being conceived into bills or laws or changes on the ground. Sure. So it's, so it's possible. Uh, long process for big changes, but it's possible. Yeah, it's a, it is a long process, especially if it's a change to a state law. That can be a, about a two-year process typically to change a law, but I think that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. By necessity, you don't want a really quick process that people are just going to work through and change laws every single year and you just have things constantly shifting. You want there to be a high burden of proof would be kind of a court term, I guess, but you want there to be a good justification, a good rationale for a change, mm-hmm. not just do things willy-nilly. And then you don't want to be changing them every single year. So, yeah, it is a difficult process, but I think that's a good thing. It kind of weeds out the sort of weaker proposals or lesser justified proposals and really focuses on the big changes that need to happen. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that actually work through that long process and are enacted. I see. I see. Interesting. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, that's Pretty, pretty comprehensive explanation of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting process, and it yeah. sounds kind of... Uh, convoluted maybe but once you've gone through it uh, it's pretty streamlined and it makes good sense i would encourage any hunter to just pay attention to whatever the local sporting groups are they probably have lobbyists and know what the different bills are maybe be in touch with the sporting groups see what the bills are and just kind of follow one through the process and usually those public hearings well they're public hearings so they are open to the public Mm -hmm. sure so if there is like a bill that changes a season length or a bag limit or something and there's a public hearing you have the opportunity as a hunter to submit your testimony on a bill and just say, this is what the bill is, this is what I think of it. And those things matter because if you get testimony from 50 people and they're almost all saying the same thing, that's going to weigh very heavily heavily with like a legislative committee and that's going to probably impact the way that they vote. Gotcha. And that just relies on people being willing to actually participate in the process and not just sit by and watch it happen. Gotcha, gotcha. Any, anything to add there, Brittany, on that? Yeah, one? and a lot of these public hearings, now that we're in a you know post-COVID era, have a remote testimony option where you don't have to physically go to the courthouse, you know, go to the Capitol building and go through that. You can, you know, call it in, uh, Zoom in, you know, whatever um, that looks like. So at least Maine has that option too. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a four-minute drive if you're up north in northern Maine. Um it can be pretty accessible. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, we're having some uh, some some dog love going on here. Um, Doggy was being a pain, so I gave her a chewy. Oh, she's <laughs> you know, she's got some love there now. I think that's what she was wanting. She was wanting some love. Mm. <laughs> Poor thing's been we're cra- distracted. She's been crated up the whole time. She's I'm sorry. fine. Sorry about that. 
Um, thank you for that. That's that's uh, very informative. I hope for a lot of people that are frustrated about things. Um, I think for from what I've seen anyway from hunters is that, like I was saying, people are busy in their lives. You know, they you know they um, they just kind of turn around twice and they see something that's changed and they're like, what what is that all about? You know, why are we doing that? And I don't have time to to put into you know. Um, to try to change it right i'm just frustrated about it and whether you get the call or not i had a a friend of mine actually a friend uh, an associate more than anything it was a patient actually at work that we were talking about the podcast and told him that i had um had talked to the deer biologist for new mexico and he's like i'm really upset at them right now you know and i said well what's going on and he's like explaining to like the the unit that he hunts quite a bit and he lives close by and that um he's seen a lot of tags a lot of people going in there and a lot of you know um over the years he's an older guy in his like 60s or something and he was saying um you know i've seen i've seen the deer decline in that area and and i've seen that they're still giving out all these tags and i don't get it i don't understand and i said well i talked to orin for three hours i said he seemed like you know that you could approach him Mm -hmm. he goes they don't listen you know and he he went on about a history of trying to contact them Mm -hmm. I've called that office X amount of times. I haven't gotten anything. Did you? Do you know that no one's called me back for? And he just went on and on. And I, I couldn't speak to it. You sure. know, all I could say is that yeah, I've talked to him, and he says that he's on board with like you know changes if they need to be made, and no one's perfect. And he like went through that whole thing, and so, um, so yeah, I think there's some people out there that might be frustrated about certain things, um, and I could go on and on about from state to state that I've heard of things that have been changed. And what I've seen, uh, and I've mentioned this at nauseum sometimes on the podcast, is that I see changes that are made by a commission, okay? And again, correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. I see changes that are made by a commission of people who are, and nothing against commission, I don't know who they are, but I I just know that they've made this decision. And uh, sometimes I've seen that it's against what the biologist has said. Like the biologist says that there needs to be a season for this. Uh, there needs to be this amount of animals to be subtracted uh, from this landscape. And per the the commission and whether it's public uh, comment or whatever, and you can say it's wolves, you can say it's bears, you can say it's whatever. There And there's been bo- both of those are hot button topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some states, um, but the hunters are clearly ranchers, hunters. You know, they're clearly upset by certain decisions that are made against what the scientist is saying. Okay, and I've talked to people about this, and they said, "Well, it's not that simple. It's the scientists making their estimations in their study, and then there's the public, and there needs to be a cohesion there." Uh, you know, looking from an objective point of view, you know, if there's an issue, I've always said, well, what's does well, I don't say what's the science? Uh, that, that's kind of not a cool term now. I want to stand behind the science. Uh, um, it, but what is the what's the objective data like? What is what are we really supposed to be doing? Like, what is the conservation model? What is like what? How are we supposed to be managing this game? Yeah, it should be like this, but. We have people who really love wolves. We have people who really love bears. We have this, you know, the public is saying this. And in order for this person to be reelected and or, you know, whatever, however you want to put it politically, 
we kind of have to take everybody's um, um, uh, opinion into account. I don't know how you feel about this as doc, as scientist, um, but as a hunter, it's frustrating. You know, it also could be. So I was going to say it also could be frustrating on the other end, but it's to me it's not. If somebody told me, "Hey, this is wrong," you know, what you're doing is wrong, even because you feel this way, that doesn't make it right for you to make that decision. I understand how you feel, but this is the science. This is what the scientist has said. That's the decision we need to make. Sorry. I would be okay with that on my end, but on on people who I, I'm going to put push the button on some of the hot button topics, whether it's wolves and, and bears. Um, this, the public says this. So we're not going to listen to the scientists. We're going to listen to the public and the scientists. So as a hunter, it's kind of frustrating if, if, if you can understand my point of view. And I know you're, you're hunters too. And I don't know how, what you can and can't say as far as being representatives for the state of Maine. But I'm just telling you from a layman point of view from a hunting point of view it's frustrating and i don't even hunt i've never even hunted a bear i've never even hunted a wolf i'm just somebody on the outside looking in and saying oh this that sounds weird why why are we doing that and i love wolves i love bears but i also love hunting you yeah. know mm-hmm. i may may or may not be a predator predator hunter too like but that doesn't really factor in it's more mm-hmm. of the objective science is what i'm looking at as a, of a part of the hunting public mm-hmm. any thoughts yeah, maybe kind of a fatalistic approach to the whole thing i feel like my job is the biology end of things and the deer management end of things and i've done my job if i kind of say my piece and give my recommendations and that's where I sort of draw the line. Like, as long as I've done that, I am pleased with my work. I think I've done a good job and I'm happy about the direction of things. Mm-hmm. There's no way to divorce the political and social aspects of game management, though. Mm-hmm. There's just no way to do that. There's always going to be constituents that want this or that, and they're always going to be at odds with one another. And that's going to play in. And I just, you can't let it bother you as a game manager, at least, because it's always going to be there. And it just doesn't do any good to get all flustered about it sure so i feel good about my job if i've done my best to look at the data make the best biology-based recommendations i can possibly do and i've felt really blessed at least with our current administration and our agency that they've been very open to input from the specialists and if you very strongly advocate for something they're going to weigh that very very heavily Mm. so i feel really good about that i think there are situations like you alluded to though where maybe you have a change in governorship and I don't know about other states, but at least here in Maine, the commissioner of our department is appointed by the governor. So if that's the case elsewhere, then who you have as a commissioner can really change quite a lot about the sort of tone of the agency and the way they go about business. But at least while I've been here, they've been really receptive to input from all of all the biologists. And I feel like we're very listened to and any recommendations that we put forward are weighed very heavily. I think that's been the case as well with our legislative committee here too. They're really interested in actually knowing why you're making a particular recommendation and they're very receptive to input from us. So I've been really happy about that. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. Social inputs and political inputs are they're just a part of it. If you let it bog you down, you're going to drive yourself right out of, your, out of the field. Yeah. And you're just going to say, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, un- it's unfortunate uh, because uh, there's no way to rectify. You said there's no divorcing. I mean, you're, you're yeah, it's in, just it's part of the hand. process. It's always going to be, I think that's, I don't think that's a bad thing though. Like a lot of people are like, don't you get frustrated if they don't follow your biology based recommendations? 
I don't really, because it's just a part of it. People are very important. Yeah, the resource is important, but people are incredibly important as well. And yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing that we take public perspective and constituent constituent viewpoints into account. Yeah. When we're developing changes to rules or laws or what what have you. Are you running for office? No. <laughs> I would get absolutely. I would last about a week, and then I would just be so stressed. And I, I need a lot of quiet time and downtime and. Yeah. Time to just think, and I don't think you get that in public yeah. office at all. Oh, that's funny. You I'm also not a quick thinker on my feet, and that doesn't lend well to debates and things like that. Yeah, well, that's the way it's structured. It's unfortunately not, you know, it's not structured well. <laughs> you should be able to think, you know. <laughs> they should give you some time to think about something. Yeah, you got to blurt stuff out, and yeah, you're right. That's yeah. You shouldn't be judging on someone, someone on based on how fast or how adept they are at blurting. Yeah. If you ever listened to Elon Musk to talk about... I can't. Like, I just... No, I can't listen to him talk. Yeah. So, because he takes too long. <laughs> that's the problem. It's like when he's asked a question, it's like, there's silence. It's yeah. working. I like that, though. But yeah. he's involved in too many things. It's just... Yeah. I can't. It's just too many things going on in his head. I can't follow it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's you do like, you, buddy. I'm he's a, almost like a mad scientist. It's it's kind of strange. It's hard to follow. On, on what, where his brain is and what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but he's the opposite that I've noticed anyway of that. Like when somebody asks him a question, it's like, what, when are you going to answer it? It's, he's just like. <laughs> I really like that. I was on an interview panel once where someone did that, and uh, on the panel side, there was negative feedback for that person doing that. But I really liked it because it, he was sitting there and like taking notes while he was thinking about questions, and then he would respond. And I love that. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, I love that too. I love that too. That's great. That's that shows that you're like you're giving pensive thought into right. like what's happening. You're like, hmm. Well, there's a lot there, you yeah. know. Let me let's start here. You know, and then work through it. That's cool, but yeah, to your point, thanks for um, yeah, thanks for offering offering that up that way, because yeah, sometimes you you get so bogged down into like you know complaining or like saying that there's you know there's no way for for this to change because it's constantly how they do it. You know, uh, we have too many whatever squirrel lovers in our city you know <laughs> or you know people who, who love wolves or who you know and and it's it's against what the biologists say so it that helps me actually a little bit to just kind of calm down and be like well well you know hopefully they make the right choice you know type one, of thing. one thing i've noticed too is a lot of people tend to rely very heavily on very narrow anecdotal evidence like i saw this in my backyard or in my woodlot therefore we need to make this change that impacts a wildlife management district that's 1,200 square miles. Sure. I'd encourage anybody to just expand your thinking beyond your woodlot and understand that there's a lot of variability on the landscape. And what you're seeing, like I think of the project where we worked in Wisconsin, there were some spots where you could go and look at a guy's field in the evening and see 80 deer, and then you drive two miles and another guy's complaining about there's no deer in my area. Yeah. It's like there's a few miles difference between those properties. There's obviously a lot of variability out there mm -hmm. in what you see in your backyard is not what's representative on the whole landscape. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, but then you're also going to have people listening that'll be like, go pound sand, Nate, because I saw this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've been around for 40 years and I saw this. You and know we do I mean? get a lot of that. And I encourage that too, because <laughs> I think it's healthy to just say what you're seeing and what you're feeling. And sure. We want to hear that from people for sure. Sure. I think a lot of people avoid that because they're like, I don't want to just vent at someone, but... 
Yeah. I think it's healthy and it's good for us too to kind of stay grounded and hear a lot of perspectives coming at us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a romantic point of view too. Like when somebody comes and says that, you know, that's been around for 50 years and like, it's kind of like, oh, this guy really cares or girl really cares yeah. about this landscape. And they're really, they're really passionate about, you know, seeing whatever it is that they're concerned about, you know? And so I, I love that. And it's better than not saying anything at all and just, you know, being upset about it and, you know, that kind of thing. Time scale is really important too. You, you just kind of mentioned that as well. A lot of people do that and they'll say 50 years ago, it was like this or that. I think it's important to understand that things change. Yeah. Things change. Yeah. <laughs> things change and you can't always time machine back and it's not always good to time machine back to the way things used to be. Things just kind of are different over time and yeah, you have to adapt. Yeah. Hopefully for the better. Yeah. And this whole concept is actually one of the things that pulled me into game management. Because again, as I mentioned, working in Wisconsin. So before that, all of my jobs had been what we call non-game, so non-harvest species. And so I had been working with the Forest Service out west in like California and Oregon. Nobody knew what I was doing and nobody cared what I was doing. I come out to Wisconsin most people I talked to knew the research that was going on and they had opinions and mm. I actually liked that. Yes, it can make your job much more complex because now you're not just, you know, making your own decisions unchallenged. But I think that that can be good. I appreciate having an informed, passionate public and I think that makes you a better biologist because one, if people are challenging you and you cannot justify your decisions or your management objectives, that's a bad thing. You should be able to justify that. And two, yeah, diversity of opinion is good. You're not the end all be all. I think it's good to kind of get some pushback or get, you know, a diversity of perspectives and experiences. I just, I think it makes you better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's a good, that's a good uh, um, perspective on it. Right. And yeah. yeah, not everybody's going to be happy because not everybody has the exact same perspective, goals, wants, needs. But um, yeah, I, I, mm. I just think it's good to yeah. be folding all of that in to what you're doing and the decisions that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. It's refreshing to know how open you guys are, you know, from people who are actually the sci scientists that are actually doing the research. So dog uh, control. Yeah. Some, dog, some doggy, <laughs> doggy stuff going on. Put her in the here. crate. <laughs> If you guys could see how beautiful this dog is, though, you just can't, you can't help but just let her do what she wants to do. She's pretty. What kind of dog is that? Australian Shepherd. As purebred? Yep. Wow. Is it a mini? Is that a it's, mini? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A mini. So she's 30 pounds. 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, what a beautiful dog. Thank you. Um, so... Uh, the final thoughts here, um, I always, uh, usually towards the end, I thought I, I like to, um, chat a little bit about, um, your like personal lives and, um, you know, how hunting and, or, uh, you know, working outside has affected your lives. Um, you know, from a family aspect, you obviously have one child back there <laughs> fur baby. covered in fluff the, 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 fl the fur baby mm -hmm. um but yeah just um you seem you know very young like you know starting your you know careers and the you know probably the, the initial third of your careers i would take it maybe or yeah yeah sounds about right. yeah and um you know thoughts on where you are now and and how um you know your your professions and and being hunters and that and that has uh, has has shaped your lives and 
how you, you know, see your lives, you know, moving on from here? <laughs> yeah, I really like what I'm doing. Um, and that's awesome. I'm very satisfied with where I am. That's a good place to be. I've never taken a job just to take a job. So that's always kind of been, you know, in my head. Um, and that helps just with, you know, happiness, joy. Those are good things. Mm -hmm. So, um, on the other side, I used to be much more of a workaholic, you know, whatever needs to be get, you know, get done, I will get it done. And being in a relationship with Nate and now married, he's been good at tempering that a bit and being like, you know, do you need to do this today? Um, are you working, you know, beyond what you're supposed to be working? Are you doing unclaimed hours? And I used to do things like that. Um, and that can definitely lead to burnout. It's good to be passionate. Um, but I've definitely been able to scale back, um, and enjoy, you know, other things outside of work, getting involved with the community. We volunteer at church. Um, so that's something that we do together every Sunday and that's been really enriching, you know, so just doing other things and stepping away from work. Um, again, it is nice that I love what I do, but to make your life more than work has been really important. So, but yeah, as, as it stands, there's nothing else I want to do. I'm not looking for the next thing. I'm not looking to climb any ladder. Um, you know, if opportunities present themselves and it just makes sense for me to move into that, then, you know, I can cross that bridge when I get there, but this is what I want to do. And I will do that here indefinitely as of today. We'll see what tomorrow looks like. Yeah. Awesome. You seem very happy. Yeah. Thanks. I've wanted to be a deer biologist since I was a little kid, so. Really? Here we I'm are. Set. I didn't think I was going to be, but I ended up here, so I'm happy. Are you serious? Yeah. Really? Yeah, well, kind of weird. My dad got into hunting when I was about 10 or 12, and that's kind of how I got into it. And used to have this tape. I think the fellow's passed away now, but the guy's name is Jerry Chapetta, and it was on a VHS, you know, old, old school tape. Mm -hmm. But it was just called Way of the Whitetail, and it was about an hour long or so, and it just talked about deer and deer hunting, and I would watch it, like, weekly. <laughs> over and over and over and over again. I, I knew pretty early what I wanted to do. I got a little discouraged uh, during you know different parts of the path along the way, but mm -hmm. I ended up in a situation where I'm where I want to be, and I don't think I'll be going anywhere. That's awesome. What Can you speak a little bit about it, like the challenges, those discouraging moments that could have, could they have you know thrown you off your path? Yeah, I'm very close to doing that. Um, well, I started on a pre-med track in undergrad, because uh, I didn't, I w what I was nervous about is if I made wildlife biology a career, I would start to hate it as like a passion. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not going to like hunting and being outdoors anymore if that's a big part of my job. I see. Um, so I was really reluctant to do that. And I just went down a pre-med track because that's what my family kind of wanted me to do. And I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. But I hated that. And so my academic performance as an undergrad was very poor to start. Ended up on academic probation went to talk to my counselor about how to get out of the hole. And she said, well, maybe you should do something you actually want to do. So I did that and I switched to fisheries Light and wildlife bulb. for my degree <laughs> program. And oh. after that, I pulled it up to over a 3.0 GPA and graduated just fine. And then was much more happy with the direction I was going after that. Mm. And then the whole kind of slog of gaining experience for four and a half years, I was doing the sort of seasonal temporary jobs, which were three to nine months each. And it's really hard to find job after job after job and link them together. And I really wanted to go to grad school, but I was having a really hard time doing that. So there were points along the way where I was like, I'm just not going to find a program. I'm going to do something else. Finally, I did find a program, went to grad school. And then after grad school, it took me over a year and a half to find this job. 
And during that period, there were several moments where I was like, what am I doing? I should just be an accountant. Everyone needs an accountant. Maybe I'll just go back to school for that. Really? But I got really lucky, ended up here. I don't know how exactly, but um, I had applied for this job. I didn't hear back for like six months, so I actually deleted it from my folder of like active applications <laughs> and had forgotten about it. And then they contacted me and wanted to interview, and I came out here and ended up here and feeling very fortunate and blessed to be out here because I did not expect it at all. That's cool. I'd like to have been around that moment. You got that email or call like, hey, I'm a very out. stoic person. So it would look <laughs> exactly the same as every other moment <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Inside, there was some level of excitement. You seem that way. You seem very stoic. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. a good word for you. I'm just stoic. Yeah. Uh, hey, thank you for that. That's awesome. Um, uh, anything that you'd want the public to know about, uh, you know, uh, the state of Maine, uh, whether it's the, the public, the your immediate community or somebody listening from, I mean, I've looked at my analytics. I have people listening in Europe now. Like, mm-hmm. So, so anything. International podcast. Yeah. Well, hey, it's only <laughs> just a couple people. Okay. So it counts. It counts. <laughs> it counts. But they're listening consistent. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anything that you'd want anyone to know that's out there about the state of Maine, uh, whether it's, you know, deer specific or, you know, any kind of, you know, whether it's wildlife or anything about Maine? At least for like something about deer managers and game managers in general that I'd like to emphasize is that we're not like these shadowy undercover secret political agent people that are like all, I don't know how to explain it, but we're just, and they're ivory we're just, towers. We're just dudes doing jobs. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I have a job and I'm doing my best. And I think that's the case for most people. Mm-hmm. We're very approachable. If you mm-hmm. have something you want to talk about related to whatever species, reach out. We're happy to talk. We're just regular people. I know there's only one deer biologist for the state of Maine, but that sounds more impressive than it really is. And just a guy doing a job and so are the rest of us <laughs> yeah yeah it's not like yeah no ivory tower here i'm just sitting on a chair in my kitchen talking to podcast jason yeah there's somebody who just reached out to you and you said yes which is thank you for that and thank I you pre- for traveling out that's nuts you fly all over for this stuff it's yeah. cool no no it's great it's, it's been a great experience i mean i'm meeting you you know you guys are awesome and i've, I've met some really amazing people and been some yeah i'm just getting started with it mm-hmm. but i've been some pr- pretty crazy places already and uh yeah kept in touch with everybody and everybody's been amazing like really great and i get a lot of good feedback from people who whether it's family or friends Mm. who listen that were you know that that liked what you know that you all said and i think that's great but to your point man you're you're not just the you you aren't just people i mean you are but you aren't just doing just a job you're i mean there's deer deer management is so important i mean it's so important to so many people there's so many you knew this when you were growing up. Like, why t- you read that? You saw that VHS tape. Like, they're mi- they're mystical creatures. I know that you called them. What did you call them earlier? The dirt. <laughs> I don't something? call them this. It's a term I've heard people use, which is wood rat. Wood- <laughs> but deer are my favorite animal. Don't get me wrong. By far, they always have been. You want to I- talk about the wood rats? Huh? <laughs> no, I swear he didn't say that. But but um, but yeah, I mean, deer hunting in America is. Uh, it's one of the like premier things that people do. Yeah. It's, it brings people together, brings families together. It's like it, it's, it it saves relationships. You're out there with your son or your 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 brother mm-hmm. or your, or your mm-hmm. husband, you know, and and you're out there, you know, spending time out in the woods together. It's something we can't lose. I don't feel in in our country. So, your management of the entire state of Maine is important, you know. So uh, and 
and Brittany, you're, you're, you, you're peppered with all of it. Mm-hmm, you know, you've mm-hmm. done you, the fact that you, um, you are in charge of all those stations where people have to bring their game in. That's crazily impressive. How many of those? Like thousands? No, like uh, under 300. Hundreds. But, yeah, yeah. But that's but still a lot. Still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're in charge Thank of you. all that. And that's where, that's where the game has to come through, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So both of your jobs are incredibly important. Like I said earlier, unsung heroes, people don't know. They just don't know. Right. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're doing a lot and, um, it's, uh, it, from what I've seen from the, the biologists that I've seen, it's just something that people don't really think about. They just go hunting, you know, and if there's a problem, then they reach out to uh, the biologists who they feel have a gun on their hip. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they're just they, a lot of people I feel just don't know. Right. So um, uh, I'm fortunate to be able to talk to you. I'm thankful for your time today to like, you know, talk me through some third grade level things. <laughs> and uh, and uh yeah, yeah, I think it's 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 been great uh, meeting you and 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 offering up your uh, your education for a couple hours. So thank you for that. Thanks for traveling. Our in. pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Anything else we need to to mull over? State of Maine's awesome. Come here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Some hunters are going to be really upset with you. <laughs> we don't have a ton of people. We have a lot of woods. We have ocean. We have mountains. We got everything you could possibly want here. Just about so. Yeah, and I'll speak to that very quickly. Just the two visits that I've had here, I 100% agree. <laughs> there, it's a it's a treasure trove of like every every anything you really want. Mm-hmm. And I've said it before. It's like the greenest state. I've you know I've been to Washington, Oregon, and stuff. But it's I feel like it's the greenest state that I've ever been in. There's woods everywhere. So um, so yeah, and there's a lot of uh, you know resources here for hunting, whether yeah. you're a predator hunter or or a deer hunter, moose hunter, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So Maine's a great state. So great climate, uh, no crazy heat. Yeah, no crazy heat, but winters, <laughs> winters, right? Or it depends are- what you're into. Like the ocean, at least so far inland, moderates the temperatures quite a bit, so it doesn't get that cold. But we do get nor'easters and quite a bit of snow. Sure, sure, yeah. But we and- like snow. Yeah, I, eh, I to a degree. <laughs> I have to clear all the snow, so I'm less <laughs> okay. of a fan than so I used not, to be. It's not her job. <laughs> nope. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much again, and uh, I hope to to do this again at some point. You know, we'll, we'll maybe refresh this conversation at some point. And sure. If there's anything else going on that we need to let people know. Cool. Sounds thank, good, man. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks for thank you. Us.